Welcome to our backyard. This is the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We are two friends having a discussion after everyone else has passed out or gone to bed. Grab a drink and listen as we discuss everything from automation, space exploration, and why the meaning of life is 42. First people to come out west noted large grasslands, giant trees for miles that you could, trees so tall you could ride a horse under and not have to dismount. How did that get there? Fire. Fire has been shaping our western landscapes and landscapes all over the United States and the world for a long, long time. Fire is a natural part of any ecosystem. It's a disturbance, similar to tornadoes, tsunamis, insect pests, anything along those lines. A long time ago, fires predominantly, well, only started through lightning strikes, and they were set at pretty regularly intervals. Different areas would have a different fire return interval or time that a fire would come back. These are regularly noted as anywhere from 10 to 100 to 1,000 year events. Places like California, Southern California specifically, has a pretty short fire return interval of one to four years. Places like Northern Idaho have a fire return interval of anywhere from 20 to 60 years. The severity of fires change throughout time. You're more likely going to have smaller fires more often. These fires that don't really burn any trees, they're called low severity fires. It's a lightning strike in the early fire season or later fire season when there's still ample rain and fuel moistures so that the fire doesn't get big. And they'll typically burn maybe 10 acres or so, a small amount, just burn up the grasses and small organic matter. These events happened much more often in the past. Medium severity fires. These fires burn a little bit hotter, closer to the middle of fire season. They're going to burn up small brush, maybe some smaller trees. Maybe they'll even kill a larger tree, but the big trees are going to be fine. High severity fires in the past happened not very often. Fires like the 1910 fire would happen every thousand years, which is closer to what we're seeing today of high severity fires that are happening more often. The way we gauged fire interval for different areas comes from a lot of different sources. Everyone's familiar with looking at tree bark and counting the rings to figure out how old it is and looking at the fire scars to tell what year there was a fire. We can do similar things with sediment in lakes and see at what area fires were, or ash was deposited into these lakes or glaciers, at what area a bunch of ash was blown onto the glaciers. And it's not just nature that was setting these fires, but... Humans learned from nature and started setting their own fires. From our ancestors, from Europe, Asia, South America, Australia, all across the world. And here in the United States, the Native Americans, they would set ablaze fields, forests, because they knew it was good for the ecosystem. They knew they could help control their environment through fire. They could burn prairies that would fertilize the ground with ash and help grow more plants that would attract buffalo and other game to that area or have a better harvest. Fire is a tool in humanity's tool belt, but it seems to have gotten away from us. And today we'll be talking about the wildfires that are affecting America, 
specifically in the Northwest, which is devastating right now. And both me and Nick, are, are how, our hearts are out to them. And uh, we're going to be focusing more, like I said, on the United States because wildfires are a very in-depth topic. Multiple countries have this problem. But as Nick was saying, humans have been involved with fire as long, almost as long as we've been around and almost as probably before recorded time. We've been using fire for a number of reasons, and it's shaped our lives. Nick mentioned it a little earlier about the Great Fire of 1910. Now, this was a massive fire, and luckily, before the podcast, Nick educated me a little bit on it because I did a little research, but not too much on it. But this this fire stretched three states from <laughs> from Montana, Idaho, and like Washington. It stretched three states that is unlike that's thousands if not millions of ponds of acres just ablaze and that fire changed pretty much how america looked at wildfires and luckily uh thanks to ed poleski or poleski i'm polish i should be able to say that i still struggle with poleski one of these days i'll get it right but he ended up forcing his crew into a cave and luckily, he only lost five of his nearly 50-man crew. And after that, he invented a, a new type of axe to help them dig trenches and cut down trees, which we'll talk about later in the podcast of different methods of preventing and fighting uh, for, uh, forest fires. But that 1910, Nick, I'm sure you can elaborate on it, that changed the game of the people's perspective on wildfires. Uh, could you go in depth a little bit more on the 1910, Nick? Yeah, so the 1910 fire is a major turning point, like Mike mentioned. One of the biggest things that come out of it is the aggressive firefighting that we see today. And that is, every at that point, they called the 10 a.m. rule. They said any fire that starts needs to be out by 10 a.m. the following day. They wanted it out fast, because when fires have time to grow, that's when they become intense. Or so that's what we thought at the time. Can you imagine getting a, I mean, you guys still do it today with fighting wildfires, but back then in the early 20th century of within 24 hours getting a, a forest fire put out with the equipment they were limited to back then, that's ridiculous to think about. Yeah, so the equipment they were using back then included mule trains. They didn't have firefighters. They had foresters who gathered up firefighters. The firefighters that gathered up were, if you were lucky, rough and tumble loggers at the time, but more than likely, they were the town drunks. And you had to load up enough food for a few days and all your tools on your mules and hike out to the fire and then put it out. That hurts my brain thinking about of packing a mule and being surrounded by the town drunks to go fight a forest fire, which at that point, getting to it, you have no idea what size it is. You have no idea if you got to run for your life or you have a chance to actually uh break it down yeah so the 1910 fire was predominantly fought by the forest service forest rangers that teddy roosevelt put to take care of public lands or our national forest which uh at the time is an unpopular thought of taking away all this land from the timber companies to give to us citizens of the united states and now we would i mean that's such an important part of life out here out west and everyone loves their public lands and it's a great treasure for sure but it wasn't always that that same way and 
Teddy Roosevelt's enemies said, wow, you guys can't even protect your land. So, which is when they headed into more aggressive firefighting strategies and really wanted to get those fires out because they had something to prove. Not soon after the 1910 fires, uh, it was the end of World War II. During World War II, America's forests were seen as a great uh, resource, not only for the economy, uh, but predominantly for as a resource to aid in the war. A lot of other European allied countries, their woods were destroyed in the fighting, and so it became a major export of the United States during the war for all sorts of things. Uh, spruce was a very important export. And the Japanese even tried to get rid of our forests by filling balloons with uh, incendiary devices. I think, Mike, you know a little bit more about exactly how they did it than I do. Yes, so this is definitely a weird weapon in history. They were trying to set American crops and force a fire, and Japan is now credited with the first international continental missile. Pretty much they took a bunch of typewriters sandbags and weather balloons and some explosives so pretty much how they did this was when a balloon gets cold it tends to shrivel up and start to deflate so the typewriters were all combined together i think there was like seven or nine all combined together to be a timer so during nighttime they would drop sand so to keep the weight lower uh to lower the weight at nighttime and during the day they wouldn't have to worry about it luckily the the bombs that did reach the United States, because they actually did reach the United States, didn't really do much damage. I think they only blew up a barn and a field, and that's about it. But the Japan wanted to destroy the forest during World War II because, like Nick said, it's a huge commodity. I mean, it's still a commodity not even in wartime, but during World War II, when lots of things were made out of wood, all our allies at that time were resource devastated because they've been fighting for so long or... They've lost so much ground or they or they just have no more supplies to give. And those forests kind of helped turn the tide. But as Nick, you were saying, World War II was a huge point to the importance of wood. But the policies that came after World War II affected the forests even more. Could you go uh, explain that a little bit? Because you're a little bit more knowledgeable on that than I am. Yeah. So once World War II ended, what did the United States have? A surplus of men and a surplus of military equipment. And that went right back into fighting fire. At the end of World War II was kind of the dawn of the modern-day firefighting. That's when you see extreme firefighting tactics used today like smoke jumpers, engines, changing it up from the mule train and the town drunks 180 degrees. You had trained firefighters. You had the technological equipment to get them to the fires fast. You established lookout towers to look for smokes, earlier detection, rapid response. All things that we'd recognize today began after World War II. Forget exactly who the man was who took it over, but he came from the military and brought a lot of that culture to firefighting. And we still see remnants of that today, for sure. Uh, for those who do not know, sky jumpers as I've learned through talking with Nick and doing research on this, are crazy people who I love. They literally get in a plane, jump out of the plane towards a fire with nothing but their gear, fight the fire, and then have to walk themselves out there with all their gear after fighting a fire. Talk, talk about knuckle grinders, because they are definitely some of them. Yeah, um, smoke jumpers are a crazy bunch, for sure. So... We're going to talk about what's going on with the trees a little bit at this time. So when the West was first settled, 
pretty much everything was deforested. That was the first cutting. And then all the seedlings sprouted or the cones gave release seeds and forest started to come back. And then there was a second cutting. And that second cutting happened starting in, say, like the 70s to now, predominantly the 70s, 80s, 60s even. And now we're on our third, maybe fourth cutting, depending on the area. This is generalized for the United States. It's going to be different forever where exactly you're at. But most wood in the United States has been cut at least once. Now there's stands out there that have never been touched, for sure. But we're talking about the majority of forests in the U.S. All this cutting has changed the landscapes significantly. If you look at early pictures of out west of say even the 20th century early 20th century compared to now that terrain is completely different of the lack of of, uh wildfires burning through the bush of different categories as nick said and the logging aspect of it of changing that terrain has changed it from sporadic trees prairies all kind of spread out compared to now dense forests which a dense forest doesn't mean a healthy forest I highly recommend to all those listening to go check out Paul Hessensberg's uh, TED Talk. He's a research economologist based in Washington. And it's very scary to think how something so natural from wildfires has been transformed from the 1910 to World War II to the 70s of how that has transitioned over the years and has been not such a good thing in some aspects of fighting forest fires for sure so the dense forests we're seeing today are definitely a drawback we're about to get into that so we're pretty much caught up to speed for the historical part except for one important event and that is the timber wars of the 80s sure everyone's familiar with the northern spotted owl the northern spotted owl is an endangered species um, that we thought population was decreasing due to habitat loss through logging It's kind of up for debate of what exactly is going on with Northern Spotted Owl. There's different science on both sides. I tend to believe it's being pushed out of its habitat by the barred owl um, due to climate change expansion of the barred owl's habitat. It's moving north from Mexico and is a better predator than the Northern Spotted Owl, so it's pushing it out. Northern Spotted Owl is moving more north, uh, and it's losing land to the south which is one of the things that happens with climate change, populations move up and down. But the important part of this story is federal cutting of timber on federal lands completely stopped. You have no more removal of fuels for the most part. To this day, they still will do maybe a few thinning projects, but nothing like they were before. Now, that was good for the timber industry at the time because now they their timber is worth more because you took away literally half the competition. The federal government at that time, up until that point, operated like a timber company, and they cut trees and replanted just like anyone else, and they burned their slash and dealt with it. So slash is all the wood products that's left over from a timber harvest. Out west, we predominantly take the bowl or the stem, the trunk of the tree. Very rarely do we take the branches and stuff for pulp, stuff that doesn't go to a mill. And we do that because there's it doesn't pay for itself to move those branches to a mill to convert them and 
to pulp or something unless you live pretty close to a pulp mill. Different places they will convert them into pulp, but predominantly out west it's not a very common thing. It's more common in the southeast. So after harvest, you have all this fuel, these branches, these needles, all this stuff lying around. So what do you do with it? Well, for a long time, timber companies and the Forest Service would just burn everything. And people didn't like that. People didn't like seeing things burn. They thought we were destroying the environment and they didn't like the smoke. Which is fair, at that time we didn't have any smoke regulations. Uh, right now, our smoke regulations say where we can and cannot point our smoke. So when we want to do a prescribed burn, we will say how many tons of fuel and that kind of equates to you know how much debris left over from logging is sitting out and then per acre we can figure out roughly well, not roughly you can get a pretty good idea you know it's not perfect so if it's a hundred acre unit there can be variation but for all intents and purposes we can pretty much tell you exactly where it's going to go based on the weather pattern you can put it into a computer and it'll simulate a model based on the forecast of where that smoke is going and we wait to burn until we're pointing it to a spot where no one lives. If we're lucky, since we live on the coast, we can throw it right out in the ocean and not pass over anyone. We also wait to burn on days that it lifts up. So the mixing height of the, of the atmosphere, we can wait for our smoke to get way up in the air so that even if it does pass over houses, it's so far above, there's little to no effect. But that wasn't how it was done in the past, which is why there's very negative views of it. In my head, when you said use simulations, for some reason, I just keep thinking you guys are using dial-up for some reason out there. And it's just, it's just, it's just funny to me thinking a bunch of uh, lumberjacks sitting around a computer is the old AOL sound of starting a computer starting up. But before we get a little too away from it, Nick, you mentioned thinning. I think it's important to realize that they're not just removing and burning branches and pine needles, but dead trees, fell trees, diseased trees, which we'll talk about in a little bit later. But there are lots of different fuel in the forest that is naturally removed through forest fires. And when the wildfires aren't happening, it all piles up. So thinning is an important process. But going back to smoke, it's nice that it, you guys got to remember those listening that it's an evolving industry. It's never the same it was. The standards have made leaps and bounds compared to what they were in like the 70s. They're more regulated. They're safer. It's more concerned about people's health. The regulations from even a 10 years ago, I imagine, are night and day. And since, Nick, you're in the industry, you could elaborate a little bit more on probably the smoke methods that uh, you guys were, you were talking about earlier about trying to get it over the ocean and trying to make sure it's upwind or you're saying uplift wind, so you're talking about wind coming up to blow the smoke upwards, or could you describe a little bit more of that? Yeah, so I'll get into a little bit later, I think, with fire behavior, but so when you picture a wildfire, you see smoke just sitting over people's houses and just covering everything, and they, on the news, they talk about the health concerns. So what's going on there is you have so much smoke that during the night, uh, you all your smoke collapses. It comes down and it hits the ground. So there's times when you can and cannot burn based on the forecast. So what you're doing when you burn, you're building up heat in a way in your fire that's very controlled. And when you build up that heat, it allows that heated air to move up. Everyone knows cool air sinks and hot air rises. Well, it's the same concept, just 
we're the ones moving that air around. So we build up enough heat that our smoke punches up into the atmosphere and away from people. And we do that by different ignition patterns. We, When we do a controlled burn, we determine when we start and we determine what what is burned and how we light it. How we light it plays a huge role in where that smoke goes, how cleanly things burn. So everyone's kind of you know, been around a campfire, and you know that not everything burns the same. Even wood doesn't all burn the same. If you throw a chunk of wood in the middle of the fire, it's going to get pretty burnt, it's going to be pretty clean. But if you put it kind of on the edge, it may smolder for a long time. Wood that gets burnt hotter burns cleaner, so it produces less particulate matter, less PM 2.5 particles. Those are the ones that everyone is worried about for the negative health effects. When, it bur- when everything burns clean, you get less of that stuff. Just your reaction is burning, cl- is uh, reacting cleaner. You don't have all this dirt and stuff that gets in the way uh, when these cooler fires that don't consume everything, which is the opposite of a prescri- prescribed burn where we burn it at a higher intensity than a slow-backing wildfire. So we use a lot of different techniques. Like Mike mentioned, we look at the forecast to say where to say where the wind is going, and it's not perfect. I had a forecast tell me wind was that it was a north wind, uh, which means it was blowing from the north, so the actual direction the smoke would go would be south. And on the surface, the wind was blowing out of the north, so it was heading south. We had a pretty big town to the north of us, and we thought, awesome. The smoke is going to go the opposite direction. It's not going to be a problem. So we started lighting. This is just pile burning, not a prescribed burn. And uh, we were putting up a probably about, I don't know, 1,500 tons if we burned the whole unit. But we burned a few piles, and I'm watching the smoke go up, and it was heading south, away from the town. Awesome. Got to about 3,000 feet and made a sharp turn. Did a 180 and started heading to the north. So we stopped the pile burn. We watched the smoke for a little bit to see where it was going determined that the smoke was in fact the transport winds were taking the smoke north you know the surface winds were predominantly north wind moving south but the atmosphere was moving north which was not what was predicted but that's what we saw on the ground there's really nothing you can do we you know everyone here has looked at the forecast and not packed that raincoat and got rained on that's just the way forecast prediction works you can't win them all Forecast predictions are like uh, are like bookie making odds on horse racing. You got an idea who what's going to happen, but it's never for certain. And before we get a little too far away from it, Nick, I want to talk about a couple things that you brought up and we mentioned earlier in the podcast. First being the different types of zones before we get too far away from that of wildfires. So like Nick mentioned, there's different wildfires because there's different regions and different terrain drier areas like nick mentioned southern california bush dry area kind of catches on fire a lot easier midlands which is like kind of hilly kind of gets some moisture but not like you know it's kind of a drier forest but it doesn't catch on fire as often you got wetlands which anyone who's tried to light something on fire that's wet you know how annoying that can get and then you got like the high up with the peaks where it's high altitude it's harder for there's less trees because it's higher altitude there's less minerals and it's snow which we'll talk about how all that affects in later in the podcast but nick you brought up i believe it was back burning if i'm not mistaken uh it's or a methodology or a term that you're talking about which i feel many viewers wouldn't know what that is so if you could elaborate on that what that is so when i was talking about prescribed burning when we 
purposely set fire to the ground uh, to reduce our fuels. So like I think I mentioned after uh, logging or something, you know, this is done predominantly in the private industry for fuels reduction to protect our grounds from wildfire, but it's also done in the government, uh, national parks a little bit, and maybe a few others, mostly state governments, uh, as a way to reduce fuel and get ready for wildfires, which may or may not never happen. But the idea is if you burn it once, it can't burn again. And why not burn it once under a controlled condition where you know where you, you know where you can stop the fire and where the smoke is going versus waiting till the middle of summer where you don't know if you have resources to stop the fire and you don't know where that smoke is going. Is that what you're talking about? No, but that is very helpful to everyone listening. You're talking about a methodology, I believe... To stop fires. To stop fires, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later uh, in the podcast now that I'm thinking about it. It's, uh, I, I believe it's setting your own fire to fight the fire. Yep. I think you, you mentioned that a little bit earlier, but I think we're just... I think I'm just confusing myself and we'll hold off for a little bit of that in the podcast. Going back up a little bit on prescribed burns because I, unlike you, Nick, I'm a bit of a pyromaniac. I kind of like fire and ooh, shiny things, explosives, et cetera, et cetera. And you have a fun tool, which I wish I got to play with, which is a drip torch. And for those listening, it's pretty much a modified gas tank with diesel with a pro pain kind of torch end that you drip some fluid on which is the diesel and it starts fire which is helping doing the control burn and it is it seems like a fun tool to play with it's definitely uh, the best part of my job um so it's it's one gallon container and it's a mix of diesel and gasoline and you can dilute the mix depending on how hot you want it to burn you know you burn or you put in more diesel it'll burn hotter you, the gasoline will make it last longer. So if you want it to burn hot, but not as long, you can kind of change that up. I would never think of gasoline being a thinning agent, which is weird to think about. Some people do a 50-50 mix. Some people do a 75-25 of diesel, 75 diesel, 25 gasoline. And that's that's mostly what we use. Well, like you said in earlier podcasts, and for all our first-time listeners listening to this one, Nick, you have first-hand experience fighting fires. And hell, less than a week ago, you were on the wildfire that's devastating the Northwest currently right now. And you told me a interesting story about the sky being blue and the sky not being there. Could you uh, sh- share with the listeners what that story is? Yeah, so if you've seen any the news out west from the wildfires. I I just got back from the Archie fire close to Roseburg, Oregon. When I was there, you could look up at the sky and you could only see smoke. Uh, There's a picture of it on our Instagram from a staging area of our fire. And on some of the days, you could even see the sun. And by see the sun, I mean you could look straight at the sun and not have to wear sunglasses, be completely fine. The smoke was so thick that it actually blocked out the sun. And everyone's familiar with the fire triangle. What do you need for fire? You need a heat source, fire, the heat source for this. I believe, I don't know if they named it exactly, but I believe it's either a downed power line that started it or human caused. So there's your heat source. 
your initial spark, your fuel, we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's a lot of downed trees. This fire, much like I want to say 90% of fires, start on federal timber ground. So most fires start on government-managed ground, and that's because of the fuel buildup. But the third thing fires need is oxygen. And you wouldn't think it'd be that hard to starve a fire of oxygen or a wildland fire. You'd think it'd be near impossible since it is, this one's miles and miles wide. But this fire produced so much smoke that it pretty much starved itself of oxygen. There was so much smoke in the air, the wind stood still, and there was no heating from the sun because the sun couldn't get through, so the fuels didn't dry out. It ended up bringing its own humidities back up during the night just because steadily there was no sun to dry everything out and there is water on the ground. It was kind of like nothing I've ever seen before in fire behavior of how little fire behavior there was on such a huge fire because there was no sunlight and no wind. Now I like to point out, please don't stare at the sun without proper production. Nick is what we call a quote-unquote special boy and likes to stare at the sun. Uh, please, please, please don't do that. But it's amazing, like we were mentioning earlier and what Nick just mentioned now, like the smoke involved in a fire. Like Everyone likes to talk about the fire, but the smoke can do so much. And to literally block out the sun, that is, that's got to be a sight to see. How, how nice was it to see blue sky when you finally got back home? Man, I got back home and I saw the blue sky and it was crazy. I was like, I had seen smoke before. I had been in firefighting before, but total blockout of the sky for that long was crazy. The people living there in Roseburg, they hadn't seen the sun for a week and a half or something. They hadn't seen the sky for a week and a half. And like we talked about uh, PM 2.5 particle that people don't like, smoke isn't good for you. You don't want to be breathing it in. It, it's a huge problem. Um, there's a study, I don't know exactly what this relates to for normal people, but out west I'm sure it's only going to get worse. But if you're a wildland firefighter, you're 43% more likely to develop lung cancer than uh, just the normal population because you're exposed to it so much. Is there any like respirators or any oxygen tubes that you guys carry out there? Is there any equipment for you guys what, when you're on the front line fighting a wildfire? Uh, no. So the thing about wildland firefighting is it's it's a long term, like it's a lot, you're out there for a while, you know, you could be out on the line for eight hours, 12 hours, breathing in smoke, or you could be out there smoke blowing away from you. You just never know. But for the structure side, we have, um, self-contained breathing apparatuses, the little bottles that everybody sees, and they'll last for, depends how healthy you are, how much activity you're doing, which, you know, how much you breathe. But you can probably get anywhere from 10 to 20, 25 minutes on a bottle if you're doing some decent work in there. And in a house, you're breathing in a lot more toxic chemicals. Now, not that wildland fire is not toxic. You know, I've heard firefighters say, oh, it's natural smoke. It's like, yeah, it is natural smoke and whatnot. It's not synthetic chemicals, but it's still not good for you. You know, there's a lot of natural things that aren't good for you. So just keep that in mind. But you're not breathing in the synthetic plastics and all that stuff that the asbestos that's definitely going to kill you in a um, structure situation. And as a lot more of these fires move into these homes, maybe that's something we need to consider. I know right now it kind of seems like the culture of sitting in the smoke doing holding. Holding is when you are sitting at the line and looking for spot fires. You're looking for fires to get across your 
firefighting line. The culture of sitting in smoke so thick you can't see, even if there was a fire there, is kind of going away, it seems like. But firefighters are wildland firefighters or forestry technicians, as they are actually called by the government, really don't have much defense. You know, sometimes if it's thick, I, like most guys, just throw on a bandana. You know, it's it's not great, but it helps. Mostly it keeps the heat down if the everything is too hot to breathe. Not that that happens to you. It's mostly if you're just passing from one spot to the next and it's kind of hot there, I'll throw a bandana over my face. But wildland firefighters don't have anything to protect them from the smoke. For the most part, they go in and they sit in the smoke for most of the day or they don't really have to deal with it. But those guys do it and they love it. And that's just kind of the way it is. You know, we're working on I'm sure more technology is going to come out as it gets better of rebreathers and stuff for them. But, you know, think about COVID. Everyone has a mask. Imagine working out in your mask for, I don't know, 8, 12 hours a day. That's just not something I see people doing. And I don't see it being something that that is going to be effective. So as of right now, there's nothing. They do have respirators you can buy for yourself. I forget who makes them. But it's kind of that culture of who is this guy like, come on. Nah, it's more like, you know, if you can't handle the smoke, get off the line kind of deal. Well, uh, since we're on smoke and we touched a little bit on your personal experience and talked about the people on the line, it's important to note that it's, you also mentioned it, it's affecting a lot of people, a lot of towns and cities, and it almost seems like it affects more people on different severity levels, of course. I mean, Fire is devastating, destroys people's homes, lives, and even costs lives. But it seems like the fire hits a wider range of people through the smoke. Because smoke, like Nick said, goes through the wind and it blocks out the sun, which seems like it's coming out of a 300 movie. And it's it's devastating what all that smoke can do. And I know a lot of people are making YouTube videos of how to help make their house smoke-proof, etc., etc. But... It seems like the smoke hits a larger range of people, which is just shows that fires are complex things and it, it affects people in many different ways. Yeah, it sure does. And like we said earlier, you know, I'm not going to run down the, every health side effect of smoke, but it's not good for you. And predominantly, it's going to hurt your lungs. And if you're someone who's at risk for that, that's going to be a concern. And just like most health issues, it's going to affect the elderly and the people who have lung issues more than others. You know, some people may not affect them at all, um, but everyone knows it's not fun to sleep in. I have a few weird things where I, how my body responds to smoke. If I inhale enough smoke, a lot of times I just get a headache. And the worst part is if I inhale enough smoke and I try to drink a beer, I'll throw up. And that, that might be by far the worst side effect that I have. You're telling me you're wasting a good beer, Nick? Well, I know now not to drink after I inhale a lot of smoke. It's just one of those things. Please, my friend, take care of yourself. Try not to inhale that much smoke. But yeah, so smoke's not good and it definitely affects a ton of people. More so than a wildfire affects, which is a lot of people, especially in today's day and age. Now, I've heard... A lot of different people discuss what today's day and age is. Some people are calling it the era of megafires or the pyrocene, which is the fire era, like all sorts of things. And why is that happening? Well, like we discussed, there's a lot of different issues at play here. We talked about the aggressive firefighting policies. Um, so firefighters put out 99% of fires within the first 24 hours, which is 
really impressive. I mean, if you're a firefighter, that's something to be proud of. You guys are killing it, and you continue to kill it. Now, the problem is those fires you miss, which, again, not your fault. I missed one of those big fires, too, when I was initial attack. It got big. There's only so much you can do when the dry lightning storm comes through, or whatever it is. There's a lot of different reasons fires aren't caught in those first 24 hours. A lot of it is weather-dependent and fuels-dependent. Very little reason fires don't get caught based on firefighter actions. So why do these fires get big? Like we talked about with the ending of logging by the Forest Service, they ended most of their land management. Land management isn't just another term for logging. Land management is, well, it's managing your land. It's caring for that land. And every land manager who I've talked to who works in the federal government, they know they need to do something about their fuels problem. And I'm going to use the term fuels to describe dead woody debris or dead shrubs, organic matter on the forest floor. When you're talking about fire, anything that's not alive and a lot of stuff that is alive, they're just fuels and they add to that fire. Your dead woody debris, which are, you know, those trees lying on the ground, they're more susceptible to fire. The size of them is going to play a factor. Smaller fuels, say your grasses, your needles, your dead leaves, stuff like that, it's only going to take an hour or so for that stuff to acclimate to the current relative humidity. So it's going to dry out quicker. And when stuff starts getting up there in size to a couple inches or three inches, it's really going to change how much time it takes for that matter to lose its moisture. And when you start getting higher in your 10,000 hour fuels, so anything above a few feet, that stuff is going to take seasons to dry out. And when I mean seasons, I mean the droughts we're seeing now, it's some of those fuels are still dried out just because it takes them so long to adjust to the humidity. They eventually average out to whatever moisture percentage it is through the year because they're so big in half the year, they may be, say, seven months out of the year, they're going to be completely dry and then the other months they're going to be completely wet so they're going to be a little bit drier and as that goes on which most of the pacific northwest is in some some form of drought they're going to get drier and drier and when these big fuels get drier and drier then they're easier to ignite to, to just simplify it it's a lot easier to light tinder than it is a whole log we've all tried to start a bonfire at one point of our lives and i also think it's important to note because we talked about a little bit earlier with uh, down power lines that only 10 to 15 percent of wildfires occur naturally the rest 85 to 90 percent are all human caused or correlated nature does start fires but because the current situation we're in and people it it really makes me disappointed in humans that they just make stupid mistakes or they set fires on purpose like not taking care of a campfire using a bad propane burner to uh, cook food when cooking or just simple stuff like that. Smokey the Bear said, you, only you can prevent forest fires. And he was right. Smokey the Bear only speaks the true true. And you should definitely listen to Smokey the Bear. I want to elaborate a little bit more, if I may, Nick, on the fuel. Because I don't think people realize, I didn't realize until researching this and talking to you. And the fuel is very abundant in these in these forests and it's not just dead trees like nick was saying but there's a lot of diseased or sick trees and a big problem is there's not a variant type and age of trees so these trees in nature before humans got involved with constantly putting these fires out you'd have trees that are 
seven years old, 20 years old, and five years old. Well, the smaller ones closer to the ground would get burned up because trees compete for sunlight, et cetera, nutrients, et cetera, et cetera. And when you have that different range, fire affects that range differently. But when you cut everything down and they're all the same age and same size, it affects the fire, the fire affects them the same. And speaking of being injured or diseased, I think, Nick, you probably know more than I do, but these beetles, we got beetles, deer, natural like fungi that affect them. And I would love for you to, because you're much more not, I mean, this is literally your backyard, your, your part-time job. Like if you could explain a little bit on like how the beetles and like a little bit more in depth on the fuels, I'd be extremely interesting to hear about that. Yeah. So like I talked about um, how the United States has gone through a few cuttings of trees. For the most part, the United States, after these cuttings, have gone, have done natural regeneration. And that is, we just let whatever comes up, comes up. There was no planting of trees. Uh, towards the later end of the previous century, we saw more aerial seeding and some planting by private industry. But for the most part, it was what was considered natural regeneration, which means just let the land do what it's going to do and it's going to come back to a forest because it's worked in the past and it's going to work again. And it does. It does still work. It's not the fastest way to get back to a forest, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But because of that, you have a bunch of seeds. You have a bunch of trees coming up from the ground, randomly spaced. Now, nature wants to thin out those trees. Nature knows they can only have so many trees in so much land. Now, how is it going to control that? Well, the same way it's controlled it in the past. Those trees are naturally going to even out through fire, through pests, through some other type of disturbance, windstorm, whatever. Well, we exclude fire, which is, all right, so you take out that variable. Well, now you have a bunch of trees living together in close quarters. Then you have beetles that feed on those trees. Uh, the mountain pine beetle is one of the biggest predators out west, predominantly in Colorado. Colorado is experiencing a pretty bad drought. You know, they have bad fires right now, but the drought really stresses those trees out. Now, what would help those trees if they had adequate resources? So imagine you have 400 trees to the acre, something above that, probably 450. It's probably hard to visualize that. We're going to go with another example. Imagine you have a gymnasium and you have people standing within six feet of each other, say two feet away, everybody, and you have a virus. We're not going to name it, but just picture a virus. Now, if everyone just stands there and they don't separate from each other, what's going to be allowed to spread very quickly? It's the same thing if you come in and you remove half those people. Well, now the virus has so much more to travel. It's the same with beetles. So what the beetles do is they start boring into the trees because they're going to suck nutrients from the tree and lay their young in that tree. The trees have a defense mechanism. Using water and the nutrients they suck up, they're going to make, well, basically a a sap, some kind of solution, and it's going to push the beetles out. And different trees have, based on genetics, based on the resources available to them through the ground, and based on how much water is available, are going to produce different consistencies of that sap. They want a sap that moves fast enough to catch the beetle without it leaving once it sees the sap coming, but not too fast where it's basically a water and they can just get out of it. They want it sticky enough to catch the beetle, but slow enough and fast enough to get to it, but slow enough where it doesn't just drip right off. 
So what that's doing is you're naturally weeding out the worst genetics for the beetle. You're also those trees that don't have those good genetics or don't have those resources to get rid of that beetle are going to die. Well, if everyone's in a drought and they're in overstocked, so there's everyone's super close to each other, those trees have been fighting their entire lives for resources, predominantly light. Once you lose the race for light, you're destined to be an understory tree. One time I cut down a like 70 year old tree. It was three and a half feet tall because it lost that race for light. I was just cutting it to get it out of the way when I was on a logging crew and I was kind of bored waiting for the skitter to come down. I was just counting the rings. I had to get a magnifying glass to count it later that day. It was the same age as all these other trees who were hundreds of feet tall, but it lost that race. So it was destined to forever be a small tree. It couldn't ever catch up. So those trees know when they can't catch up, it's over. He survived for that long, probably just barely getting enough sunlight, just barely getting enough resources to eventually one day, if those other trees died, he could come up and take root. Sure. But it didn't look good. The cards weren't on the table for him. It's the same way for these other trees. If they are spending all their resources growing up, they're just trying to put on as much height as they can, as much foliage spreading out to shade out the other trees. Because once they take that sunlight from another tree, that tree doesn't have it and they're completely shaded out, then they're fine on that side. They have to worry about their other side, sure, but they're not going to face competition from that other side. And when trees are very tight like that, they spend all the resources in growing up because the tallest ones are going to survive and the ones that can't grow as tall, they're going to die. And a lot of that's based on genetics and what's in the soil. So... Those trees put all their energy into growing up, right? Well, when they do that, what do they take it from? They take it from their defense against the beetles. If they're trying to grow up as fast as they can, they can't also grow really fast and grow really tall and have the perfect solution to push those beetles out and have enough energy left over to withstand a drought. So what are they supposed to do? Well, it's the game of life and the strong are going to survive and the weak are going to die. Now here's the problem why we can't just let that happen. Now hang on Nick, I want to I want to jump in here before you uh hit that point. I want to emphasize on again, like I said in the beginning, a dense forest does not mean a healthy forest. Before humans got involved fighting the fires, there was a lot less trees, so there was a lot less competition for fighting for the light and resources. There was the trees were more spread out, as Nick mentioned in that beautiful quote in the beginning, you could ride a horse underneath them cuz they're growing so tall. There are more prairies, there are more fields, and because of these extreme fires just wiping out all of them and us not letting nature kind of take its course with controlled burns or just uh, natural burns, it has completely changed the ecosystem and we just expect nature just to bounce back. And when other attributes start getting into the mix, such as the beetles, which are I would say they're pretty much a plague of, ble- of uh, those invasive species destroying the trees and forests. Because you got to imagine, if you're sick or you're full of holes as a tree, it's going to be a lot easier to set you on fire. Just more surface area to burn. You're not doing as well. You can't make as thick as bark, which we'll talk about later in the podcast, how bark plays a role. But it's it just a synapsis is the beetles and the closeness of the forest are devastating for the trees compared to what they're supposed to be at. Sorry, Nick, they want to cut you off there, but I figured I'd jump into that point before we uh, kind of elaborate next couple of things. Nope, you're good. Um, sometimes I can get carried away. You are passionate about trees. I'll definitely... I'll. You are a uh, tree hugger, wink, wink, and something more. 
if I do say so myself. I do tend to hug trees during inventory, which is where we figure out how many trees we have before we cut them down. Now, are you naked with a hole saw or are there people there? Uh, there's other people there and I have a lot of Okay, so you're all on. sharing the hole. Yes. Got it. Just making sure. So, um, I kid people, I kid, I kid. So the reason that it's important that we address this beetle problem is, first off, these beetles are native. They're a, a, a natural part of the ecosystem, and they're a control. Nature is really trying to keep these things in check, and it does a pretty good job of bringing things back to where it should be. Like I said, these overstocked forests, there's a lot of trees. So these beetles, they start attacking the tree, and there's a drought, and it's overstocked. These trees are stressed. They found a weak spot. They found a weak tree. So what do they do? Well, once they get in, they release a pheromone. And that pheromone attracts the other beetles and says, hey, I found a weak tree. Which is, you know, that's how they normally operate. But due to the increased dead trees, there's an increase in beetle population by a ton. So these beetles can easily overpower even healthy trees, genetically good trees, trees that would otherwise be able to repel these attacks because the horde of beetles attacking them is so great they can't possibly repel these trees. So these beetles are killing the trees that the drought and the competition doesn't kill. And once these trees die, they basically just become fuel. Piles and piles of fuel just keep adding up. These It seems like these forests can't quite win. I mean, you got sick trees, you got beetle infested trees, you got trees trying to compete for light, so they're like starving to death. A lot of fuel, and like Nick said, you can fight all you want, but if you miss one because the ecosystem is not natural, it won't do what it's supposed to do. It'll be these massive fires, which we're getting now in the Northwest with all the smoke and all, all these fires just destroying communities and people's homes and livelihood and their lives. And it's, it's a terrible thing, but it's not completely hopeless. I know, again, I want to go back to what uh, Paul Hesenberg, because when researching this, I, I took quite a bit from him. He has this quote I want to want to read. He goes, after a century without fire, meaning he, the us fighting fires within pretty much 24 hours dead branches and down trees on the forest floor are at a powder keg levels and you add all that fuel from the beetles the resource the lack of resources the drought it is a powder keg it is a massive amount of fuel on the forest floors and i would hate to see another fire like the 1910 fire come around where it's spreading across three states where it's just so massive and uncontrollable and it seems like a losing battle with all this fuel and there's there's ways we can fix it which we'll talk about later in the podcast but it, it every inch matters and everything's been adding up with the different types of problems that these forests and parks are having. Yeah, so I think a good exercise here, I'm going to talk about the different effects of the different fires. So take even your overstock stand right now with the, say, your Colorado beetle kill. You have a bunch of trees, some of them dead, not all of them on the ground. You have a low-intensity fire come through early in the fire season. That fire is going to come through the bottom it's going to burn up your grasses, your twigs, your sticks, maybe a, a log, maybe a, some leftovers from the previous logging, a big old stump that's going to smoke for a while. But most of your trees are going to survive. Say you have a medium intensity fire, okay? This fire is going to come through. It's going to burn up everything on the, on the ground. You're going to burn up, same thing, your needles, your twigs, 
any log that's on the ground. It may reach up in the overstory. You may have bush or something that touches a can the canopy, and it may hit the canopy, burn one or two trees. The fire is going to spend a lot more time on the ground. It's going to heat things to a higher level. But predominantly, the forest is going to be okay. You lost a few trees here and there, but that's nature doing its job. Now you have a high-intensity fire, or stand replacing, like the 1910 fire. Fire is going to come through. It's going to burn the ground. It's going to burn everything on the ground. It's going to burn every tree, maybe a few survive. Eventually, you'll have your old-growth forest with your large trees, and this is one way to do it. The problem with these high-intensity fires we're seeing today is because we have so much fuel on the ground, fire spends a lot more time on the ground. So what that means is that fire, that heat stays there and that's heating your soils. And when you heat your soils that long, what you're doing is you're destroying your organic matter, which is the background, the backbone of your soils. When you're, all the organic matter is gone from your soil, it's basically sand. It loses its water holding capacity. It loses most of the nutrients in it. It's not good for the soil, which is the most important part of your forest besides water inputs and everything above it. You're basically starting over from nothing in some places. Now, that's for high-intensity burns, which isn't everywhere, but it's an important thing to consider. So, with that in mind, where do we go to for solutions? We talked about prescribed burning. Well, before you get too far away from that, I want to talk a little bit more of what you just said. So for those not familiar with it, like old growth is your more traditional older trees, trees that reach, you know, 60 feet, like the ones that have been around for a while, like the, the old trees, that's where, kind of where the name comes from. And that's kind of where the bark comes in, which I was talking about earlier. When you have different ages of trees of old growth, young saplings, saplings bark isn't that thick compared to an old growth. And the old growth allows the trees to help survive those fires. That bark is a protective barrier. That bark's there for a reason. It's not just cosmetics. So when you have different levels of fires, it affects trees differently. So these high-intensity fires tend to affect the old growth because it can go through that bark. But when you have like these middle to lower fires, the old growth can survive, which is very nice because it clears out the area, allows seeds like we said mentioned earlier at like allow all turns all that fuel into ash when it's not piled 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 up like it is now but that ash is a great fertilizer to help bring back nutrients to the soil like as nick was talking about soil is the most important part and some some seeds actually need fire to sprout like there's there's a cone that nick will probably help me remind me of because he is a nerd like that and loves forestry but without, there's a cone that you need fire to pop and grow. There are tons of seeds that won't grow until after a forest fire because they know their competition is gone. So it helps complete that new cycle. And it's very important to have a variant range in your forest of different ages of trees. Sorry, Nick, to interrupt you there, but I figure that is a good point before we turn heel. No, that's a, an excellent point, and uh, we should definitely touch on it. So like we mentioned a few times, how important fire is to the ecosystem, now I guess is a good time to talk about why. Most trees, I'm going to say trees because that's mostly what I talk about, but most plants are adapted to live with disturbance or fire or adapted to live in a place where it doesn't exist. Take your sequoias, your giant sequoias, those species that everyone said, I'm sure you've heard, giant sequoias, their population is diminishing. What can we do? Burning. We need to bring back burning. They need to burn to increase their area where they survive. Sequoias 
thrive and burn environments. And we said we can't burn, and we stopped all the burns, and we sit here, and we can't figure out why sequoias aren't coming back, and then we blame logging. This is, is one of many species that thrive on fire. There's a flower, I can't remember exactly what it is, down in California. It's a fire driven species, disturbance driven. We can mimic the effects of fire through logging, through thinning treatments, through a bunch of different things, but there needs to be a disturbance. It's a natural part of the ecosystem. Different plants are adapted to it. A lot of plants will do different things. Some will have a, a root system that is just extremely hardened to fire. So the fire will come through, kill the top of the plant, Grass is one of these where if a low intensity fire comes through, it'll burn the grass, but the grass will just shoot up with some new shoots and it's good to go. Root system still intact. Big leaf maple, another plant kind of like that where you can burn the top, it may die, new branch pops up, good to go. So that's one way to survive it. Another is have seeds that are resistant to fire, which is kind of what the sequoia does with serotonous cones. Now, some trees have these serotonous cones. It's imagine kind of a waxish coating on your pine cone. And what fire does is it just removes that coating. And once that coating is removed, those seeds come out like normal seeds. What that does is it's basically, it's, it's a very simple way to tell that tree that a fire was here, we killed everything else, now it's time to repopulate. And so they're adapted that way. Other species, say like western red cedar, they're adapted to fire by living in places where there's really not fire. They live predominantly in wetter areas, and they tend to grow older because they live in wetter areas. They have thicker barks. When fire does come through, it's not as damaging. All these ecosystems out west are adapted to fire in some way or another. Whether they're adapted to deal with it or get away from it, it is an important part, and it helps species move around. Th think of a thick, dark forest, and now think of deer. What do deer eat? Plants. How tall are deer? Can they reach the top of trees like giraffes? Well, if they formed a circus and got on each other's backs and then did a backflip, no. Exactly. So if we only had thick, dark forests because we had no disturbance and trees were allowed to grow everywhere, would we have any forage for deer? No. So why do we think it's natural to only have old growth trees where there is no forage for deer in deep dark forest? You're you're barking up the wrong tree on that one. Uh Okay, we're done with the, we're done with the puns. Oh, I can't I can't help it. I can't help it. No, but it like before we get too far away from it, it Nick, I can't take any credit for this one. Nick's the one who taught me this, but a natural adaptation that trees have developed to help survive these fires, like Nick was talking about how different plants need it and how different plants survive it, is old trees, the ones that are tall, will lose their bottom branches so that when the fire comes through, it won't affect them because they don't need it anymore. They're tall enough. But, as Nick says, they need, nature needs to eat. So, like, they need to have a variant of different sizes because it's a complex ecosystem. So you need birds to eat berries that might be on top of trees. You need deer to eat grass and leaves that might be on small shrubbery and leaves. And just a variant of creatures, like squirrels climbing up trees. You need all the branches of the, to the ground floor to the top of the canopy. You need all those levels to have a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, exactly, Mike. So 
like Mike mentioned, trees self-prune. So these older trees, Douglas fir, ponderosa pine, they know that any branch that's close to the ground, that's something that can burn. The higher up you can get your branches, the less likely they're going to get burned and the more likely they're going to get sunlight. You know, it really helps in both ways. Older trees tend to have thicker bark. They can survive more intense fires. Ponderosa pine has super thick bark, and it's really good thriving in fire-driven ecosystems. And fires aren't bad. Even high-intensity fires are good for the environment. You can't, like I mentioned, you can't have only a forested ecosystem. You need some sort of grass and stuff for your deer and your elk, all those foraging plants. Even your your owls and your birds, your hawks and your eagles, your bald eagles that Americans love so much, they're awesome. Even though uh, Franklin, who didn't want him to be the national bird, they're still pretty cool. Didn't he want turkeys to be the national bird? He he definitely wanted turkeys. Oh, turkeys are such good eating. Anyway, well, the dark meat is. But um, so if you only have forests, you don't get the complex ecosystems we see today, and then you can't have the you can't have all these different species. Like I mentioned, the owls, which is endangered, they need areas to hunt. They need tall trees to roost in, but they need areas that are open so they can find mice. They can find these rodents moving around at night. Eagles and ospreys, well, ospreys need tall trees near water, but eagles and, uh, oh, what's the other one? Raptors? Hawks. Hawks, that's it. (laughs) They need, man, I could not think of it. They need open fields. Not open fields, but they need, you know, a thick canopy isn't going to, they're not going to be able to fly around in that and look down and find rodents the way they can in, say, some younger trees or some grassland that burns all the time. That's going to be habitat that's more suited to them. And you need this change because some species survive on what's called edge habitats. An edge habitat is, say, they live in the timber, but they hunt in the grassland right next right next door. You need this change up. You can't have solid timber and you can't have solid grasslands and you want a kind of a mix. Different species are going to survive in different places. And so the more complex we can make our ecosystems, the better. And we can do it naturally, which is going to be better than artificially, which is what you're more likely to see right now in uh, like private timber ground. You're going to see a wide range of ages. You're going to see a lot of more different species than you will in just federal management, just trees. And you can see this in bee populations, uh, like we talked about in our bee podcast. You're more likely to find bees in private timber industry ground, which is more closely related to our uh, historical norms of varying age groups of trees. And it's not that hard to figure out why. It's because bees need pollinate. They need plants. They need flowers. They need flowers to pollinate. And, and a great way to do this is with fire. Yeah, you're basically just opening up the canopy. You're allowing these seeds that are sitting there to get in the soil, open up, and see that there's sunlight. Seeds that don't see sun aren't going to sprout. Or they will, but they just won't produce plants. Fire, this, the, the having fire in the ecosystem is natural. It's, uh, we've talked about the history of it. We talk about the importance of it. It helps thin, it thins the herd so that, so the herd is healthier, so to speak. And now that we have the history of it and a bit of the importance of it, Nick, since you're far more involved into it, I think we should explain a little bit about what are current methods that are being used to help fight 
these forest fires and wildfires. Okay. So how we, we're going to talk about how we fight our current wildfires, and then we'll talk about how to prevent them. There, There's two sides to wildfire reduction. Your first side is suppression, and your next side is prevention. Oh, look at you with these fancy words. I tend to think prevention is the way to go. Don't get me wrong, suppression is very, very important. Modern day wildfires are stopped by a few ways. Smaller fires, like I mentioned, are stopped pretty immediately with a direct attack. So your firefighters are going out to your fire. It's generally less than an acre to an acre, depending on terrain. I mean, fighting fire in the grassland is completely different than fighting fire in the mountainside. So if you fight fire somewhere else and out west, please forgive me. This is where I, I work and this is where this is coming from. If it's pretty small, you're not seeing super aggressive flame length. It's not moving very fast. You can go direct on it, which means you're going to dig line adjacent to it. So digging line you're going to create a hole in the earth. You're basically scooping all the grass and shrubs and needles, leaves on the ground, and putting them to the side. You're getting down to bare mineral soil. And when the fire hits that line of bare mineral soil, turns out fire doesn't burn dirt. And so it's just going to hit that line and it's going to go out. So you dig that line all around the fire and then you come back with some water hopefully, and mop it up. So you just put water on any spot that's still hot. Different fuels are going to burn for longer. If you don't have water after you dig your line, you're going to have to dry mop. And that sucks. Using water is definitely the way to go, but working out in the wilderness, that's not always the case. So that means you're going to have to feel around with your hands for any hot spots, which you would do if you were wet mopping too. And when you find a hot spot, you basically f you dig and dig until you find the heat source. Once you find that heat source, you smother it with dirt until it goes out. And you have to do that. It takes a long time and you get really dirty. If you have a hose, you hose everything down, you figure out what's hot, you put water on it, and you're done. It's a lot easier. So you're telling me either... Nick, either A, you're a dirty boy, or B, you're getting wet and playing with hoses. You know what they say about firefighters, right? No. I'm trying, trying, trying to think of a joke. I was not smart enough to come up with one. Uh, they go in hot, come out wet. Ah, that that's clever. That's clever. Pretty much every firefighter except for Robert. <laughs> not going to name last names, but you know who you are. Well, I know how to beep names now, so you can do it. It just it would save me so much time editing for you not to drop last names. You're welcome for that, Robert. Your other... <laughs> last time we, we dropped some names. Um, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so that's 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 how you go direct for a smaller fire. And other other techniques include you just put a line around the, ho or around the fire. So if you have water and you're on an engine crew or something like that, you can just spray the whole thing out and then put a line around it once it's dry, once it's wet and mopped up and call it a day. Now, sometimes you have to go indirect. So if your fire's getting a little hairy, it's doing things, you don't want to be close to it. Basically, if your fire, your flame length is over three and a half feet, you're not going to be going direct. Firefighters can't handle it. If you have a dozer, that may be something else or air, helicopters, planes, kind of changes the game. We're going to try and keep it simple here and not get too off topic. So if you're going indirect, there's a few ways. It's kind of the same thing. You dig line, but a lot farther out. You wet the other side of that line. That's a that's a tactic you could use. That's one that we used on the Archie fire. You One of my personal favorites, because I think nothing beats fire like fire itself, you dig a line around the fire. 
And a lot of times you use in some kind of line that's already there, like a road, a ridge top, a stream, something that's going to stop the fire or should based on fire activity. You know, some streams may stop the fire, but if the fire is raging and your stream's a few inches wide, it's really nothing. So you kind of got to play it by ear based on your topography and what's going on. But like I said, my favorite is to lighting a backing fire, which you talked about earlier. So what you're doing is you're finding an area, say your fire's burned up a bunch of acres, it's getting pretty big. Now, if it's still blowing up, you're probably not going to put any fire to the ground. You're going to let it lie down for a little bit. But say your fire behavior is somewhat reasonable, it, you have a line, you just want to make it more secure. So what do you do? You walk around the edge of your line and you light it on fire. What that's going to do is your fire is going to back. So when a fire is backing, it's heading the opposite way that it wants to. Predominantly downhill. Fires usually run uphill. So if you light a backing fire, most of the time it's going downhill. So it's going to be a lot slower fire behavior and a lot less intense than what you're seeing. For those listening, to, sorry Nick, but to simplify this, it's pretty much running a different fire head on to the fire you're trying to put out. And I love this technique for some reason. In my head, it, to me, I love the idea of fighting fire with fire. Because if, if I set everything on fire, then there's nothing left for that other fire to burn. And I just, for some reason, love that principle. You know the only difference between a wildland firefighter and an arsonist? The one gets paid to do it. Exactly. And a uniform. Yeah. So what you're doing there is, it's, it's a very important technique, is you're providing more black. And that black is unburnt fuel. Or sorry, burnt fuel. That black is fuel that can't be burned again. So your line, which say it was a road, say you're back burning off of a road, your road's 20 feet wide. Say your fire is 500 feet away. So you light a backburn, and maybe your backburn is 20 feet. You know, you light it at the top, and then you have another lighter down below, 10 feet behind him. That's 20 feet. So your road, which was your uh, your line, is now 40 feet. It's double in size. Well, what happens when that fire gets close to your fire? It's going to pull into each other. Now, it's going to pull the little fire towards the bigger fire because it anything in between... Okay, you have two flame sources, and the bigger the fires get, what do they need more of? They have fuel. They have an ignition source. What's missing in the fire triangle? Oxygen. Oxygen, exactly. You took my breath away, Nick. Oh, nope. Anyway, <laughs> so those guys, those two fires are going to pull oxygen, which means they're going to basically pull each other towards each other. So as they get closer, they're pulling each other towards each other, which is great because they're pulling that fire away from your line, which means more black for you. And once they hit each other, they're going to be pretty intense. But there's nothing behind that other fire to burn. It's already burned. There's some things, because it was a low-intensity fire, it may burn, but not enough to really heat it up and cross that line. You've essentially taken the fires... <laughs> oh my god, I hate you, Mike. Breath away, because there's nothing to burn. So even though it's got fuel and it's got oxygen... Or sorry, even though it's got oxygen and it's got a heat source, it has no fuel, so it can't burn. So that's one way to do it. Another thing they do with big fires is you're more likely to see these very large air tankers or your smaller planes and all they're doing is they're dropping water with retardant which is basically a clay mixture it's environmentally friendly and it just makes the water not evaporate as quickly so that it stays wetter longer so you're increasing the humidity 
on the line so that the fire has less chance to cross it. Now these air tanker, or these airplanes and helicopters, they're really not trying to stop the fire as much as they are to slow it down. And those airdrops are very expensive depending on the size of the plane. Well, they're all expensive. It just only gets more expensive the bigger the plane gets. I also imagine those are only really used in worst case scenarios, well not worst case scenarios, but in very crit only critical situations to either A, control it, or like you said, buy yourself time. Yeah, so those are used when you know, you're really just trying to slow it down. They're Like I said, they're very expensive and depending on who you are, cost may or may not play a part in how you fight that fire. And sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do, but fighting fire, you know, you do people do have to pay for it well i guess we are those people the taxpayers have to pay for it and one method i can actually help contribute with it because i actually have some experience with it is fire break you've all probably seen fire breaks if you ever took a well i hope you've all seen a fire break there's just a wide opening straightaway path in woods and country uh if you've never left a city please leave a city please go be out in nature you're missing a lot fire breaks are to me, kind of like a very good preventive method. And Nick, I know you're more familiar with chopping wood to, with chainsaws and axes to make a fire break more on the spot and worrying about falling on trees, which I'm sure you'll talk about in a second. But fire breaks are pretty common wherever you go. It's pretty much you just remove a bunch of quote unquote fuel, trees, bushes, et cetera, et cetera, in a pathway. So when the fire has nothing to jump to, to burn, to if it accidentally pops because of embers, it has no, it won't jump over to the other side of the of the tree line. And it's a great way to prevent and fight fires is having little, just take the fuel away by making a giant pathway with nothing in there. All right, we are moving into prevention. Prevention is the most important part of wildland fire. I will say it time and time again. Yes, Mike, fire breaks are awesome. And you can really tell different areas of how much they value fire prevention by how many fire breaks they have. When you move closer to Bend, where they have a lot of wildfires, you're more likely to see fire breaks. Uh, Bend, Oregon, that is. They do a pretty good job out there. Their fire prevention program is really good. Places like closer to the coast, Rose, anywhere where federal land is plentiful, for the most part, you're not going to see as good of fire breaks. There's other ways to prevent forest fires, though. Fire breaks is a great example. And I do want to talk about them a little bit more, actually. Mike, we didn't take environmental sciences together, did we? In high school or? Yeah, in high school. I took the class. Okay. But granted, I only went to like two years of high school, so. Okay, did you, did you talk about how people wanted to just build fire breaks across western forest not that i can remember like miles and miles like hundreds of miles of fire breaks okay we talked about that in class and it seems like a great idea in illinois it's not actually feasible once you get out west and see that it turns out 99% of this country is not as flat as illinois and nebraska wait you're telling me the rocky mountains aren't flat they're not <laughs> Even though someone from the Midwest must have thought of this, and they must think they're a genius to this day, but they have obviously never been out West or have much familiarity with logging and working with multiple landowners, or they're just a dreamer. You can't just log a straight line for thousands of miles, and even if you did, that's not how fire works. You want to cut fire off at your ridges or your roads or your rivers. 
Fire, stopping a fire on a mid-slope road is impossible. It shouldn't be done. It's unsafe. Fire uses topography or how steep things are to heat up. So imagine there's fire at the bottom of a mountain. Well, that fire is slowly burning. Well, what is it doing as it burns? Everything above it is currently getting heated up. So everything above that, once the stuff below it burns, is getting even hotter. So as you go up that mountain, it's getting progressively hotter. And now you're going to try and cut it off halfway? No. What you do is you cut it off on the back side of that ridge. So once that fire burns all the way up that mountain and it gets to the other side, where's that heat going? Their heat is still going up because, like we said, heat rises. So what's coming back down the other side? You're going to get flames, yeah, but they're not going to be as hot as if you try to stop them when all that heat below is building up to it because all that heat from there is shooting up top. So you make your fire break on the backside of that ridge by a couple feet to, well, 20 feet to even more than that, depending on terrain, stuff like that it's going to be a lot more effective. To kind of bring it back, what we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast, different topography, different evolution has different amount of trees. Like we said, there are there were used to be prairies more abundant. They were, uh, again, the higher you go up, the less trees there are, the less resources. So these ridges are natural fire breaks. And if we build upon them with fire breaks, that man-made ones, it helps with that fire prevention. And I completely agree with Nick. Hard work now to save a lot of hard work later. Yeah, and if we work now, we're building these fire breaks where these firefighters aren't exposed to smoke, aren't exposed to fire, aren't exposed to the dangers they are in the future. In the end, we're saving these guys some hard work, which I know they love, but what if we were saving lives? So that's why we can't build a big fire break across the West, because we can't just draw a line and run around it. Now, that doesn't say little fire breaks don't work because everything is going to make a difference. And if you have those fire breaks in place already, they're going to make a huge difference. But they're just not feasible for hundreds of miles. As a forester, for our fuels reduction, when we burn our leftover logging slash and we burn our units, we are gaining an advantage of our burned units. They're going to be more fire resistant. They're going to have almost no fuel for a new fire to come through and burn besides what grows after the burn, which stuff does grow back because that's how nature works. It wants to recolonize. Those fire breaks, though, are these burned units, anywhere from, you know, 20 to 100-something acres. They're more fire-resistant than they were the year before. And I say fire-resistant because nothing is fireproof, no matter how, what, how preventative you make it. If a really intense fire comes through, it's going to burn. But the more fire-resistant it is, the more likely you are that your trees will survive. And talking about tree survival i think we mentioned a little bit about it in earlier in the podcast is the water how important the water is when you have a company or state etc etc using an abundance of water taking water water away creating drought that is makes everything drier so not taking as much water as you want but only taking what's water that you needed is very good prevention method of making things not so dehydrated not so dry keeping that ground at a more natural moisture level because water is really good at putting out fires who would have thought water and fire yeah 
So there's ways to keep water in the ground without ever taking it out. And we talked about it earlier a couple times. We're going to touch on it now. Thinning. Thinning is the process of going into a stand of trees and removing your losers. Your trees that aren't as tall as the other trees. They're not good competitors. They don't have good genetics. They're damaged. And if we're doing this commercially, for a private company, we're going to remove the trees that have some kind of defect. Maybe they have their forked branches and it wouldn't make a board. But at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're removing a percentage of the trees so that the other trees are healthier. They're not competing as much. They can focus more on their own survival than growing. And when you thin, a lot of times you take those other trees out of the forest. And a lot of times it's not going to, you're not going to make a profit. You're going to make You're going to break even. You're going to make a little profit. You're going to lose a little money. Predominantly, you're doing this to make your stand healthier because it's overstocked. This isn't really a money-making venture. This is just forest health kind of thinking. And Nick, what are some great ways to thin such forests? Now, there's a lot of ways to thin. Um, You can do it by hand. You can have a hand crew go through with chainsaws, and they'll cut your smaller trees when they're younger. As the age of the trees go up, it becomes more and more efficient to do it with heavy equipment. And we can even do it on pretty steep ground, have some kind of feller buncher or a hot saw, which is basically, um, imagine some kind of like uh, an excavator, but instead of a bucket that picks things up, it's basically a giant mechanical chainsaw that also grabs the tree and cuts it down. I've seen those. They're, I've, I absolutely love them so much. Yeah, they're a good time. And then they'll drop the trees. And then you can have some kind of forwarder or something come through, which is basically a giant tractor with a grapple on the back that'll lift up the trees, put them in the back of its carriage. It's basically a log truck on treads or big tires that goes off-road. It'll bring it back to the landing or where the log trucks come, load that stuff onto the log trucks, and they can get out of there. Now, the great thing about these is... Well, just like everything, technology is improving. Now, imagine driving those pieces of equipment out west. Yeah, it's pretty crazy because we got mountains out here. Well, you can't just drive those pieces of equipment off the edge of a cliff until recently. Well, you can. You can, but now we can do it and not have to buy new pieces of equipment, (laughs) which can run you probably close to half a million dollars. Oof. Big oof. Yeah. By attaching that equipment to some kind of stabilizer, usually another cat, a dozer or something that gets lodged up there. Loggers are ingenious people, so they can do this in a lot of different ways. But it's called tethered logging. And what they're doing is you have some system at the top that basically acts as an anchor, and they can either tie off to it, or that's the part that releases line, a big cable, down to your equipment down below. And they'll lower that equipment down to a 70% slope or more. Basically, just look up at your ceiling and that line that you're looking up at, just that's how steep they can go. They can go pretty steep. Now, imagine you're in a car looking over that kind of edge. It's going to be kind of a game changer. Uh, You are going to be freaking out. I know my mom would be freaking out just looking down a slope like that from the side of a car I was driving. (laughs) So the great thing about these machines is, one, before this, we did went on ground like that with hand cutters, falling trees, and a yarder, which is, imagine a giant tower with a cable that goes to the other side of the canyon and a little machine that runs down that cable and drops another cable, picks up the trees, picks them up, and brings them back to the landing. Now, when we do this with tethered equipment, 
all the trees are processed in front of the equipment, which means all the branches and stuff falls in front of the equipment, which means reduced compaction. Like I mentioned, soil is one of the most important parts of the forest. And when it is compacted, it makes it really hard for things to grow. We are able to now thin in areas we couldn't thin. And with compaction that we are reducing compaction in a way we could not dream of before. This is like a game changer. We can completely change our forest health. And we did a bunch of this after a bunch of our trees died due to an ice storm, which is probably like a hundred year event or so out here. It's it's pretty uncommon for us to get ice or at least as much ice and snow as we did last year on the coast of Oregon next to the ocean. But it happened. But that's how we reduced our fuel loading. So that's one way to reduce your fuel loading. So we have prescribed burning, we have thinning, and there's another way it's called mastication. Mastication isn't really reducing your fuel loading in my mind. It's more taking your fuel loading from a vertical fuel to a horizontal fuel. Imagine an excavator where instead of a bucket or a grapple, you just have a giant wood chipper and it looks at your tree and it goes down and it turns your tree into wood chips. You still technically have the same amount of fuel. However, that fuel is now scattered all over the ground. What you're doing is you're having more intense fuels on the ground and you're not having any crown fires. You're not having your canopy burn. This is a pretty popular fuel reduction in California and in other places. I don't think it's very effective personally because you're not actually reducing any fuel. You're just reducing where it stands in the ecosystem. To me, the most efficient and the one that makes the most sense is controlled burning. Like in like in Nebraska, uh, we talked a little bit before this recording uh, to each other, and Nick will probably elaborate more on Nebraska's controlled burning. But again, nature gives us the solution, and history tells us how to use it. Nature was already doing wildfires, but at a better rate, and better control than we were. And for some reason, humans thought we could, should control nature and start pretending we're gods when we're really just part of the ecosystem, no different than anything else. And when we affect the ecosystem in such a huge impact, and we, of course, are going to expect change, but yet we still don't. But I still think wildfires, the best way for prevention is doing controlled burns. Just the way nature does it, the way our ancestors done it, the way that's been proven and now with new technology and as nick clearly said with all the technology we've gone through we've gone from our ancestors using axes and two-handed saws to chainsaws to now we're using specialized caterpillar machines and other heavy industrial equipment to literally turn trees into sawdust and chippings and it's amazing how much the technology is coming we still need to change our mindset on it. And again, I think Nebraska is doing a very interesting method with control burning that I think, Nick, you know more in depth about it, but if I'll give a little synopsis of it before you explain more, that you can do control burning and anyone can learn. So that way they can do it on the property. So that way it's not just in the hands of big government or the state, it's in the hands of you as the individual and you know how to do it safely. Because there are tons and tons and tons of landowners that 
want to take care of their land and want to do it properly. And if you're given the knowledge and the tools, that should be enough. And luckily enough, the tools are somewhat readily available and the knowledge is becoming more available. So Nick, if you can, could you describe on Nebraska's control burning methodology? Yeah, um, give a shout out to the Midwest for once again doing it right. So like Mike said, and I don't think I could have put it better, but many hands make little work. So we have thousands of acres that need prescribed burning. So what better way to do that than let everyone help you out? It's a team effort. So what's going on in Nebraska, you might ask? Well, first off, nothing. <laughs> Second off, juniper encroachment. Juniper isn't even an invasive species. It's a species that was kept out of the Great Plains of Nebraska by fire. It's just a tree, juniper tree. It's nothing crazy, but it colonizes at a pretty good pace when there's no fire. Fire has kept it out of these areas for a long time, but it is coming in quick because like we talked about previously, we've done a really good job at excluding fire from the ecosystem. Now you're seeing juniper forest. That's right, forests. Okay, where it used to be prairie. People talk about the disappearance of the prairie and it's because of we're building all these towns and agriculture. It's like, that's true. You know, you know, cornfields never going to be a prairie and Chicago is never going to be a wetlands. And that's just the way it is. But there are prairies out there. And what's more detrimental to those prairies than any of those things, besides maybe an increase in agriculture, which we can't, you know, we're not going to stop that because we all like corn for thousands upon thousands of thousands of products. But we have prairies. So let's protect it. Well, these juniper trees are making a forest, an actual forest out of the prairie. So what do they do? Well, the great thing about burning in Nebraska is you don't deal with the terrain that you do out west. If anyone's ever been to Nebraska, you know what I'm talking about. It is flat. Nebraska is the state most often cited by flat earthers as for why the earth is flat. And for very good reason, if you've ever driven through Nebraska on its one or two highways that have no turns. Anyway, Nebraska has a really decent amount of prairie, and it's actually pretty crazy compared to what's left in the other Midwest states. The way to control fire or do control burns in Nebraska is actually pretty simple too. You run around the outside of your fire with basically a giant lawnmower. Think anytime you've ever seen the county or the state do grass cuttings on the side of a highway. They have a tractor which pulls a big mower, and what that does is you're reducing your fuel on one side. That's your line. The other side, you just wet it all down, and then you light in a circle. And what does fire do? It builds up heat towards the middle. It pulls towards each other, so it all pools inward. It's pretty simple. I was out there with, I don't know, 30, 40 people. We were able to burn a 1,000 acres a day easily, which is unheard of out west. If we can burn 100 acres in a day, we did really good. The terrain, the fuels, the topography plays such a role out here. That's kind of hard, especially if you want to keep things alive. But out west, you're just trying to get build up enough heat to kill your small junipers. So that's what they're doing, and they're doing a great job at it. Now, the thing about letting everyone use fire is, yeah, fire is dangerous. I don't think anyone's going to debate that. I don't know, probably. But it's it's hard to control fire, given. But we need to put more fire on the ground because fire controls everything. And it is nature's reset button. Nature doesn't like the forest that we've built through canopy, through for, through terrible forest management and fire exclusion. We have made some overstocked forest. And as pretty as people think they are, something needs to change. Now, Nebraska's got a pretty good handle on it. They're reintroducing 
fire to the prairie. And it's going to do really good for them because, I don't know, when was the last time you saw an out-of-control wildfire in Nebraska? That's a good point. I don't think I've ever heard of an out-of-control fire in Nebraska. Now, those areas don't have fire as much as the West does. They don't have as regular a fire return interval or... They do, but they don't have as regular an intense fire return interval. So it's not the best comparison to make. I understand that. But fire is a part of the ecosystem, and it definitely plays a role, and they didn't get rid of it. They're bringing it back, and it's definitely helping them off. Now, if you look at some other states where they did exclude wildfire and did exclude any kind of disturbance, yeah, I'm going to have to say it. California is really... Their regulations led to almost no fire breaks. There's really nothing there. Their fuels reduction is almost nothing. And they spend half of the United States wildland fire budget every year or more than half. Now, they're one state. So if one state spends half, how much do the other states get to spend, Mike? Is it an equal amount? From my engineering background, I think one minus 0.5 is... uh carry the uh, one i think that's i say i think that's less than less than equal for the rest of the states compared to california exactly so california needs to kind of manage your fuels better than the other states for sure but i don't entirely blame california a lot of this is a federal problem now we talked about the northern spotted owl earlier um the federal government after the northern spotted owl and the silent spring whole environmentalist movement of the 70s 80s they were caught between a rock and a hard place on one side you have the timber industry you have loggers people who work in a sawmill these people out here in a small town who thrive on timber dollars or grazing dollars they graze cows on Bureau of Land Management land, and they want to log or graze. On the other hand, you have environmentalists, and they want to do nothing. So somewhere in the middle, like it often is, is a solution. But the government is on one hand being yelled at to do nothing, and on the other hand is being yelled at to do everything. Now, if we could reach a compromise we could still come out with some pretty good solutions to reduce our fuel. So the government not wanting to offend anyone, and I'm not entirely blaming the government. I think a lot of this is our fault for what we thought at the time. And now we realize the science isn't there to support it, but we're still too afraid to act. The government did nothing and continues to do nothing. Now, because a lot of the people who work in the federal government, for the most part, went to school out west and they understand a lot about the fuels and the ecology of the western United States, they still do some thinnings here and there, but nowhere near enough to make a difference. And they're afraid to act, and I don't blame them, because you have the loud majorities on either side yelling and yelling and yelling, and the safest thing to do is do nothing, because that's what everyone expects you to do. But we know why that's a problem now. Yeah, but an inch is an inch, and everything adds up, so everyone can do a little bit to help. And not not to take too far away from it, but another really simple, easy prevention for these wildfires is you, the listeners. Just doing simple things like don't park on tall grass after driving a while because your muffler might start the wild grass on fire. Or make sure you have a heat shield on the bottom of your car so that way the heat doesn't cause the fire. Or don't drop your cigarette bud. Don't let your campfire get out of control. Make sure you actually put out your campfire. Just simple stuff like that. No matter how small it is, it all adds up. And uh, to everyone helping thin and get rid of the fuel, bravo, and 
the listeners, you can do so much to help prevent these forests and wildfires by just taking care of your own things and making sure you're doing it with knowledge. Again, Nick, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's a compromise in between two points and simply having the knowledge will allow people and industries and the government to make good decisions for the good of the ecosystem and the good of the individuals and the good individuals will then help affect everyone and help change the ecosystem. I'm glad you brought that up because I was definitely ragging on the feds there for a minute and they deserve it. But there's another important part of FIRE that we're about to discuss and that is the Wildland Urban Interface. So the Wildland Urban Interface or WUI as it is called, W-U-I. Mike, I'm sure you've noticed um, the dream of moving out into the country is one that's been resurfacing in modern-day America. I don't know if you've seen that as much. I dream about it every night. Exactly. Well, maybe not. I don't know. You're weird. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, moving out into the country is a dream a lot of people have, getting away from everything, especially... With COVID going on, more people want to get further away. So what do they do? Well, they move further away. They build houses out in the wilderness, which is fine. As an American, you're completely entitled to do that. But I don't think, well, that's not true. I know most of these people don't understand how wildfire works. And I kind of use the example of every area has a natural disaster. You move to Florida, you know hurricanes is a problem everything <laughs> and yeah you're right everything is a problem midwest has tornadoes you know that's just the way it is snowstorms in in the new england there's some kind of natural disaster you're gonna face and that's pretty common the problem with wildfire is no one who moves out into the wilderness is prepared for it everyone wants a house where the woods come right up to the house okay so now I'm going to put that into firefighting terminology. Everyone wants to move out into the wilderness where you have a bunch of matches that lean up against your house. You cannot do that. You can. You definitely can. It is completely unsafe. And it's driving the increased cost of wildfire. Now there's a lot of things that lead to the increased cost of wildfire. You know, bigger fires, hotter fires. Definitely has an increase. But none more so than people moving into the, the wildland urban interface. And that's where it's a gray area between city and wilderness. I'm sure you've at one point driven out into one of those areas where it's there's houses every so often, but for the most part, it's predominantly woods. I think we, your aunt has a place somewhere like that kind of in Michigan. Yeah. So fire is a part of that ecosystem as well. Now, a lot of people who move out there, what that's the last thing on their mind. And I don't blame them. Not everyone knows that. It's not, you know, there's no big sign that says, make sure your house is fire safe. So what can you do to keep your house fire safe? First off, you don't want vegetation within 30 feet of your home. If you're building a new home, build with material that is fire resistant. So you're not building with wood and you're not building with uh, roofing that is flammable. Different areas are going to have different things that's more common. But for the most part, if you ask a contractor for fire resistant materials, they'll be able to provide them, especially in California. So after that first 30 feet, it's more common if you're going to be fire resistant or fire wise, the big fire resistant program out west, gravel, have some kind of rock, something that's not going to burn 30 feet circle around your home. After that, 100 feet, grass, just grass. No trees. No, if you really want a tree, make sure your trees are all trimmed up. 
So make sure the there's no branches touching the ground or touching that can go from the grass to your tree, preferably an older tree with fire resistant bark. Good side note for just living in the woods in general, don't have trees next to your house. Trees fall in fire, trees fall in windstorms, trees fall in ice storms, trees fall in snowstorms, trees fall due to disease, trees fall due to wind. If that tree is within distance of your house and it's leaning towards your house or leaning against your house but the wind is blowing towards your house, there's a chance it could fall on your house. For the sake of everyone involved, please don't have trees around your house. After that first 150 feet around your house where you have gravel 30 feet, grass 100 feet, if you have trees, they are trimmed, or you can have garden and stuff in there, but keep everything as low as you can to the ground because anything that's high is gonna throw embers towards your house. And if you have a flammable roof, those embers will eventually land there. The more embers that land there, the more likely it is to start a fire. After 150 feet, if you own that much land, make sure all the trees around are pruned. Try and keep the ladder fuels, any fuel that leads from the forest floor, of a continuous vegetation towards the canopy away because that's going to be what brings those embers from the, the in fire from the first floor up to the canopy and that's going to throw embers onto the roof of your house which will burn. So Nick, you're telling me if I keep nature like trees close to my house, I'm going to have a bad time in case there's a fire. Not only that, but if you have unhealthy trees next to your house and you have wood beetles in them, sometimes those wood beetles will start attacking your house and boring into it. That's always fun. But it, it's it's amazing how just simple things like have like a 100 foot radius, like 100 foot may sound a lot, but 100 feet isn't that far once you actually like start thinking out. When you're living out in the middle of the woods, it's 100 feet's nothing. So like having that simple prevention makes a world of difference. Because again, these wildfires destroy people's homes, people's cars, people's, their, their entire cities and towns. And in the worst case scenarios, it takes people's lives, both the firefighters and the people trying to live in their home. So simple stuff like that, people. It's, it, it's simple things you can do that can help prevent forest fires. And there's, and there's methodology to prevent wildfires that we've discussed a little bit earlier. And not only will they help prevent forest fighter death from trying to save a house that can't be saved, it and it will save your house. It saves time. It saves your neighbor's house. Every firefighter has done some form of uh, structure protection is what we call it, where you sit around someone's house and make sure it's protected. I had the fortune of sitting next to this uh, this World War II vet's house where there's a fire counter making sure his house is protected. He came out and to show his age, he was asking about our MREs and he was like, do they have any cigarettes in them? It's like, dude, it's 2013. There hasn't been cigarettes in these since Vietnam. But he gave us a bunch of food, and it was great. His house was defended. He had no fuel within 100 feet of his house, and he had a pond on his property and sprinklers set up from that pond to water everything so everything was wet so it wouldn't burn. We really didn't need to be there. But there's a lot of other times we're doing structure protection where it did not go that way. Now, doing structure protection when you have the resources is great. Beginning of season, fire season, end of fire season, when you have an excess of resources, you can do structure protection all day. In the middle of fire season, when resources are scarce, here's how fire or structure protection goes. That house has trees within 30 feet of it. It's not worth our time to save that house. Go to the next house. Oh, this house has 100 feet of nothing. We can spend our time prepping that house for defense against fire. 
easily spend a few minutes prepping that house, move on to the next one. This house has vines growing up it from the bottom. There's no protection. Just keep moving. Next house. Uh, they've done a little bit of work. Maybe a half hour, hour or so of work will get this house looking really good for fire protection. Let's do it. You kind of get the drift. The more work you do now, the more likely firefighters are to save your house later. Things that aren't good. Don't keep your wood pile up against your house and don't keep your haystack up against your house. Just fuel. Don't keep fuel against your house. Think about how much money your house is and how cheap firewood and hay is expensive. I get that, but is it worth more than your house? Probably not. Yeah, it's uh it's simple things. Just a little 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 hard work now saves a big headache in the long run. And I think we've hit on a lot of points on preventions and speaking of a little work now to save a big work later, if you want if you want Nick, I like to transition to possible future solutions to fighting these forest fires and wildfires yeah so solutions i think we really just have to change our land management strategy like we talked about prescribed burning it seems pretty simple and this the science for the most part i mean for all part backs prescribed burning it says that it will reduce wildfire which is great but it very much community opposed prescribed burning is there's not a lot of people in favor of it other fuel treatments the people aren't in favor of it people kind of think that if we don't burn now we can just outlaw burning so we will never have smoke even though year and year again the massive amount of smoke that sits in people's lungs for weeks at a time due to wildfires i think will change people's mind it doesn't seem to prescribed burning is easily the most important part but it's not the only part because prescribed burning is seasonal. It can only be done at certain times due to different fuel moistures. It's not an all-around solution. Thinning, I think, will help us more than anything else, as unglamorous as it is. I think there's a lot of different solutions out there, but I think we need to employ all of them. Like I said, thinning, we can do year-round. We need to start that. We need to start targeting more at-risk areas for prescribed burning. Right now, for the company I work for, we do a lot of prescribed burning, but what do we do it to do? We do it in the middle of nowhere, to protect our wilderness or our timberlands because, well, that's where we can do it. I would not dream of putting fire on the ground near anyone's house because of regulations, positive views, and if it goes wrong, there's houses around. There's other ways to deal with that, sure. We can use machines to manually remove all the fuel, but just the risk to public is too great. People are not going to be down for that. So people need to start managing their risk on their own, or we need to have a situation where Maybe we're bringing a lot of resources and we know their house is safe. We can set up sprinklers, go as far as we need to. But what I think one of the greatest ironies is, is we do the most anti-fire and fire prevention and reduction treatments way away from the public. And we do that for two reasons. One, we don't want the public seeing the, the amount of impact we have on the land. Public doesn't like that. It doesn't matter if in the end game it's positive. They don't like to see it. Two, smoke. People don't like smoke which is fine. I get it. It's bad for you. No argument there. But we cannot live in a world without smoke. So we need to figure out some way around that because smoke is going to be a part of our lives whether we like it to or not. But what if it doesn't have to be? Now, I I like crazy ideas. I like crazy solutions. And I completely agree with Nick saying, thinking that doing controlled burns is the best way to prevent these damaging wildfires. And a little smoke now will, I mean, it'll prevent from the entire sun being blocked out for towns and cities. So it seems, it seems 
bad tasting medicine now to be healthy later. But what happens if we could reform current technology to help us fight just smoke? Because smoke, again, is a affects people on a larger scale than fire usually this is with asterisks and some of the technology kind of already exists today so i really kind of want to point out the point of smog now smog is different than smoke smog is usually like a nitric oxide gas if i remember correctly and smoke is usually carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide but there are machines and i guess the best way to describe them is they look very organic a lot of them use static electricity to help collect and purify the air from smog and these and these bad uh gases what if we could re-engineer them a little bit to target more carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide for towns? So it would either A, attract the smoke, that so that way there'd be less smoke in the air, or B, at least filter it so there's less particles per in the air per inch than there normally would be, and it'd be healthier and safer. Or even best case scenario, it make it small devices that people can put inside their houses so that way they can purify their own air. Because I know a lot of people are showing YouTube videos on how to reverse their heater fan to blow out air and all these crazy videos to help keep smoke out of their houses. But if we could re-engineer some technology and, as we talk throughout the podcast, some immersion technology or crazy ideas that me and Nick both have, I think it's a real possibility of taking a beehive... I guess that's the best way I could say it. It looks like a the one... In China, I think it's Beijing. It looks like a beehive, pretty much. It's maybe seven meters, so that's twenty-four feet ish, twenty-three feet feet uh, in height. Uses static electricity to collect the particles. Weapons, if we could reamp that to help collect the carbon dioxide. Now we've already made machines in the past to try to help collect carbon dioxide with wafers using a catalyst, etc., uh, etc., et to help collect it. So what if we up that scale to make it? more air purifying systems for town cities and individuals i think that's a it's a solution that's within four or five years i think that's a very possible solution and we could have it almost immediately what's your opinion on that nick all right getting in the solutions that's where i was going to go next too and this is where i don't know what the solution is mike now i think we're at two two divergent paths we kind of got to pick one one is adapt to living to the mass amounts of smoke we see every year, which is what yours is. And the other one is adapt or change, try and change back the landscape to a fire resilient ecosystem that we don't have these large fires every year. And I think definitely a temporary idea, or even a permanent idea, you know, we have these in shape or in place all the time is definitely a good idea because, you know, we're not managing the air quality for the healthiest people who aren't going to be affected. What we're really helping out is the elderly population, the people who can't survive breathing this air all the time, and it's going to be continue to be a problem. Like you said, five years, you think, is a timeline for this? My professional opinion of if we started an aggressive fuels treatment program tomorrow, we won't see results for another 20 years. And that's because dealing with land management in a scale that grand, which is what I do every day, you won't see the effects for a long, long time. So it's definitely important to do stuff like this because do people just have 20 years just inhale increasing amounts of wildfire smoke? Probably not. Are we going to? Probably. And that's kind of what I want to get into is that what is easier? Should we, you know, wildfire is such a pervasive part of our life out here. Should we just get used to dealing with it? Should we just have positive pressure buildings that continually clean air and push it out so that 
when you walk in, you only breathe clean air. You don't breathe gross wildfire smoke. Is that such going to be such a part of our lives every day? I think it's a combination. I think we can adapt for what the current environment is now to buy us time to correct nature, to correct our mistake that we've done to nature so that we don't need those anymore. So having implementing devices and solutions to buy us time pretty much to help purify the air, help quickly put out uh, these uh, wildfires, I think is a good solution for short term. And I'm by short term, I mean, next 15 years, just as we slowly transition, because again, you said it, Nick, this is massive amounts of land we're talking about to slowly transition into a more balanced environment, we need time. And in order to do that, we need to buy ourselves time. And I think using different methodology to attack wildfires, to put out wildfires, and to deal with the repercussions of wildfires is the way to do it. And I would love to talk about possibilities to put out wildfires or at least somewhat prevent slash fight them if uh, you want to hear some. Yeah, I do. Um, I do want to say, I, I can't remember what source it was, but I was listening to... I can't remember what it was, but different people's sources on how to deal with the smoke epidemic, which is what some people are calling it. Even though it happens every year, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise because we live in a fire-driven area, and you shouldn't be surprised when there's fire. Anyway, um, they're kind of similar to your thoughts, but not exactly, saying that each town needs to build, basically think England, World War II, uh, bomb shelters, but instead of being bomb-proof, it's just a large underground building with air that's constantly recycled and cleaned from smoke so that people can get a break, and people would live in these things during fire season. So I'm going to just, I, I, I'm sorry, I immediately disagree with that. Sorry, I'll, I'll let you continue, but I, I just want to point that out. Okay, I do too. I think it's, uh, it's just running away from the problem and not treating anything, but I think it's uh, it's it's more telling of where people's minds are of dealing with fire than confronting the problem head on. They'd rather subject themselves to this kind of living. So for that bunker, CO2 scrubbing and like is a complicated process. It's easier to filter out air or at least lessen the particles per in, in a small area than it is to sustain a group of people underground. Like the science, like the engineering and science of it, one's way easier to do than the other. And building a bunker, we've done it before. The technology already exists, but that's expensive. You got to replace those filters a lot. It, there's the backup. Gen- it's it's not the smartest use of money. There's there's way better ways to use that money for prevention and fighting the wildfires. Yeah, I'm sure. I. I think it's more telling of how people think that wildfire is this problem that will never go away. And granted, you know, I'm putting a 20-year action, aggressive action now, 20-year results later. That, that kind of seems like a problem that will never go away. But when you start to think more long-term, you're not doing this for you. You're doing this for your kids and everyone else down the line. We've said it once on this podcast, we'll say it before, we need to think more generational, less greedy now, like think longer term solutions and projects. I think that's a great way to do it. And one possibility, which I think has strong implications because it can be used to solve a multitude of problems, not just wildfire, 
would be to create new reservoir and hot zones. So pretty much dig a giant trench from the Pacific Ocean inland to a reservoir and have different facilities along the way to desalinate the water. So pretty much you would you would burn the water off. You sorry, not burn. You'd boil the water off, collect the salt, sell the salt, use that water deep. Uh, you'd purify it, so then you could run a power plant off that water because you need kind of pure water to run power plants or else it destroys your uh, turbines. So then you can create electricity. So not only would you get salt, you'd get electricity. You'd also get fresh water going inland that could be used to fight fires, could also help be used to water the land and keep the land moist so it would be preventing wildfires. And if you were going to build a bunker for everyone in a area because now you got to consider now for you got your town and then everyone surrounding the town who might live a little bit farther around in farm country or the woods and then you got cities that's i think it'd be cheaper to build desalination and power plants and build a trench than it would to do to build bunkers yeah probably those all seem like really expensive options and like i i actually don't think i said this the forest service and the blm now i'm not talking about national parks national parks we don't touch because they're wilderness and that's the way they are that's the way teddy roosevelt intended them to be and that's the way they will be because teddy roosevelt is a god among men however forest service and blm grounds were meant to provide income to support the national parks we can prevent wildfires and make money for a company not a company for a country that's 21 trillion dollars in debt how about we reduce our fuel loading and make money at the same time that seems like a win-win to me maybe i'm missing something nick you're making too much sense people don't like that it's really like it's not that complicated we have a bunch of forest products in our west renewable forest products we have more trees now than we did a thousand years ago because of our forestry as well as led to a great deal by overpopulation of trees by the federal government we shouldn't have four times as many trees that's a lot of trees we can't healthily have that we need to figure something out so why don't we just sell those excess trees, make a buck off it, and use that money for something good? Now, in the state of Idaho, they use their forest products to, well, the state state ground, any timber harvested on state ground, for the most part, goes to school for the kids. Same way with Oregon until they pretty much stopped all state ground harvesting due to whatever, politics, blah, blah, blah. And in other areas out west, for the most part, timber paid for education. Now... I'm willing to compromise. I think reducing our timber fuel loading will have an, a decreased effect on wildfire. If you want to put that towards some sort of green whatever to help the environment, that's fine. Let's just get those trees and that dead fuel off the ground. The federal government is hindered very much by environmental impact surveys and all that kind of bullshit. That by the time they get around to harvesting dead trees, they have no value in them. My company... There's a big fire that burned up predominantly us and Bureau of Land Management. All of our trees were harvested in the mill, made into boards. The ground was site prepped, ready for planting, and we were planting it before the federal government started harvesting. So I'll give you a quick time frame of what that 
means. By the time the federal government started to put machines on the ground, the tree had lost most of its value and we had already put another tree in the ground. It would probably take them another year. They were an entire year behind. 12 months behind how long it takes private industry to do something. Now, that brings me to a good point of what to do after a fire. So I don't know if you, before we dive into that, Mike, if you wanted to add anything about how long it takes federal government to act in after fires and stuff like that. Well, before we transition into after fire, I would love to talk about different methodology to help fight fires and keep, keep come up with a little bit more solutions. Like one solution, because you're in Oregon and you have lots of federal federal owned land there and it kind of makes your entire state look like a checkerboard which is weird to think about because considering i'm in texas where it's like all private land but it's a big problem like you said of time lapse between private and federal so when these wildfires happen the federal land is next to say bob and bob takes care of his land but wildfire comes through that federal land's got all this dead wood that's gonna catch that on fire that's gonna spread and before the podcast, you came up with a good solution, which I think you forgot about, which was group all the federal land together. So redistribute the land, keep equal amounts of land, but keep all the federal land together and all the private land together. It's hard, but I think it's a good possibility. And since it's your idea, I want to see if you wanted to elaborate on it on all. I did. Yeah, I there's so many parts of this that I love all of them. This is, like I said, this is my favorite topic ever to discuss. And there's so many solutions, so many issues. It's I could really go on forever. So like Mike said, out west, land is predominantly, it ends up in a checkerboard. So that means every square mile. So there's these things called townships. A township is 36 square miles. And out west, the way the government decided to divide land up is half of that would go to the federal government and half of that would go to private ownership. Private ownership was allowed to buy that. So they would. And for the money sold from those private ownerships, portion of it would be donated towards schools, which is another way they raise money from timber dollars towards schools. But that was way back in the day. That's not something that happens now. Just a little interesting history tidbit there. So now we live in a world where 50% of the land is owned by private companies, private landowners, and the other 50% is owned by the federal government. Now, federal versus Private land is a huge problem out west. Now, it may not be for the people 90% of their day, but that 1%, around 99% of the time, that 1% of the time it is affect them, it's a big issue. Federal government really doesn't close their land down for fire danger. You bet your ass private does. And if you're hanging out on private land during fire season, well, you better have a good lawyer. They really, We really don't like people hanging out during fire season. Now, right now, depending on when you listen to this, this is September of 2020. There are a bunch of wildfires raging in Oregon, burning... I don't know, the fire I was on was at like 121,000 acres, and it was the fifth largest fire in Oregon. It's dry out here. We got a little bit of rain, half an inch, which is awesome, but it is by no means enough to end fire season. I had to kick some people off our ground today who brought a propane stove out into the woods. Let me put this into other words. One-fifth of Oregonians were under evacuation orders due to wildfire, and I had to tell people they shouldn't bring fire out into the woods. So I don't know how far education is going to go. Some people just aren't going to get it. True, true. But, 
you know what does grab people's attention? Explosives. And I think explosives could be a good tool in the toolbox to help fight these forest fires. Specifically, something Sweden did and they did test on. Sweden, they used missiles to help create a vacuum. I'm not sure if it was... I don't think it was a vacuum. I think it was they were using a large aspiration of air to pretty much blow the air the blow the flames out like you blowing a candle out on a birthday cake but they use explosives to do it so they would find the heart of the fire shoot a missile in it blow up the missile and have all the air just blow out the fire all around it and from the tests i did when researching this it worked and it'd be pretty fun to shoot missiles into a hillside that's on fire now i definitely have some weird attributes about me so it might just be me but it's not the only explosive option that there is demolition cord demolition cord used by the u.s military constantly since since fighting fires became militarized after World War II, why not keep it going militarized? So Demolition Cord is a plastic explosive. I think it's P-E-T-N or P-T-E-N. But anyhow, it's a plastic explosive that's pretty, it's very stable, very good to drill, uh, control, and it's pretty much just a rope. Now, I think it'd be a great t- tool to implement for firefighters to, if they need to dig a line to prevent the fire from crossing, is have a small entrenching tool, a team of two, drag it along it so as it as spike will drag or spade would drag in the dirt lay and then behind that would be laying cord of deck cord and you just blow it up so that way you don't have you don't have to have everyone digging to dig these trenches you could just use explosives to dig these trenches and i think explosives could be a good way to destructively fight wildfires and if you don't want to go to destructive method there i think you could also build again we talked about earlier about fire breaks and natural land breaks like ridges well what happens if we built more of those we built more ridges we added more small ponds more reservoirs more more rocks in areas more gravel pathways in these prairies just to create disturbances so if a fire does happen it doesn't spread as easily and i i think that's all i think i don't think i don't think you should ever take a solution off the table because how crazy it sounds definitely (laughs) granted that's coming from me i'm kind of the king of coming up with crazy ideas but I think it's a good possibility to come up with a crazy possibility, and I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that can be the right possibility. And I want to see how many times I can say possibility right then. But using explosives to destructively fight fire, or using natural land breaks and create our our own synthetic land breaks like ridges and rocks, like I said earlier, might be the way to help fight these fires, or at the very least have companies and engineers develop new gear and better gear for these firefighters because these firefighters are putting their lives on the line and they're trying to help and save people and and technology is slowly catching up but not fast enough and it's a it's a shame that they're not having the top of the gear or the newest tools in the line or not more people are focusing on bettering the equipment that they have. Sorry if I want a little tangent there, but I like the possibilities and I like the hypotheticals. So that's uh, that's always my avenue. So I'm going to tell you how many wildland firefighters who, disclaimer, who are currently digging line on an engine that regularly digs line or a hand crew who would be against the idea of using explosive. And that number is maybe one. <laughs> now, I can't name that person individually, but... I'm sure there's one person who would oppose it. Now, to put kind of what Mike's saying into perspective, a normal wildland fire hand crew has 20 members on it. You got crews 
squads of four and a squad boss. Now, um, everyone's talking about the rising cost of wildfires. So imagine for all those hand crews, instead of paying 20 people, you're paying two people and you're paying them more. First off, very pro explosives, especially if I get to use them. We get to use a lot of fun tools, fighting fire and setting fires. We use, like we mentioned, drip torches, some occasionally helicopters that have, well, giant, like, um, uh, it's actually a glycol that comes out of it that is on fire, that creates fire. Chuckers, which is basically a grenade, except instead of fragmentation, it is explosive. It is, is incendiary and creates fire. Just all sorts of fun things. So very pro the explosive route, especially if I got to use them. I have heard a little bit about this. Um, touching on, you mentioned it previously, but didn't really expand on it. The using missiles to create a vacuum. Another important firefighting tool back in the east really not seen out west is leaf blowers now if you angle leaf blowers a certain way they create a vacuum well they create so much air that there's not enough air for the fire that it goes out it's don't entirely understand how it works now the problem with the leaf blowers is if you do it wrong you are providing more fuel to that fire but those guys have it down somehow we tried it out west and we did not have it down instead we made the fire bigger but it was controlled so it wasn't a big deal you added leaf blower bellows to your fire well we just kind of wanted to see how it would work okay and it didn't quick quick science lesson for everyone because i've done some blacksmithing if all right so your your fuel and oxygen ratio are really important and if you you can dump enough oxygen you can suffocate it because there it's just the burn ratio it's not it's not right it's like if you have a a room completely filled with hydrogen and nothing else and a and a spark i don't i don't think it will light because there's no oxygen there's no way to combust it there's the fuel there's the heat source, but there's no oxygen. But when you have like uh, like propane or you have charcoal or coal, like a forge, a lot of people add bellows, which are just a fancy way of blowing air into that fire to help get the fire hotter. So it sounds like me to me is you guys put more oxygen into the fire to make the fire hotter which hurts my head you know how you get to be better at your job mike reading no experience <laughs> i was i knew, i was just trying to throw you in at the bus there i was trying anything i could no um yeah we we had seen the technique used and we wanted to try it out and uh there's definitely a way to do it um my buddy who went down south, I think they used them, and he told us that they worked pretty good. But it's just not something you regularly see out west, so it's kind of a... Can't hurt to try it kind of thing? Yeah, I can't hurt to try it. Well, I mean, it, I guess technically <laughs> it, it did in fact hurt to try it. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is fuel brakes. We have been talking a lot about fuel brakes, and they're very important, don't get me wrong. But like we talked about in nature, it doesn't stop. So when you create a fuel brake, that's temporary. Temporary. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, there's studies that show when you create some sort of fuel break, if you treat 40% of that land, whatever it is, say a square mile, you treat 40% of that land to reduce fuel loading, you'll have reduced fire intensity. If you treat 80% of that land for reduced fire loading, reduced fuel loading, you'll have almost no fire or the fire that comes through will be very, will be low intensity not burn a lot and that study holds up when you expand that to like a couple hundred acres to a thousand acres to an acre it's 
a really good ratio to use. But think about that when you say a thousand acres. What is eighty percent of that? Eight hundred. That's a lot of yeah. That's a lot of acres to treat, especially when we predominantly treat a hundred acres at a time based on topography. Yeah, I really don't think people understand how much land this actually is. This is a massive amount of it's thousands upon thousands of acres, and it's just that's just it's just so much to deal with, so much land, and it's not just like Nick said in early in the podcast, flatland. It's mountainous. It's different terrain. It's it's a complex ecosystem with hard terrain yeah it's it's a big problem and it's it's going to take a lot of land managers from different agencies different parts of the government private industry private landowners farmers ranchers loggers all of that are gonna have to work together if we really want to reduce our wildfire which is a tall order i i think we can do it it's it's really not out of the realm of possibility especially when you consider and I'm going to completely make up this number um, based on current demographics in the United States. 90% of people are against people's houses getting burned up in wildfire. I think that made up statistic is probably accurate. Yeah, I would definitely say it's somewhere around there. That's a fair, fair assessment. But uh, Nick, I got a question. We've come up with some preventive. We come up with some active. What about after the fire all right i'm glad you brought that up because this is where i really don't know what the solution is because these are philosophical questions ecological questions personal questions i don't know where i stand on a lot of these now don't get me wrong if we're talking about private industry ground and by private industry ground i mean ground that is for timber production timber is a crop you know, the way we work, the way I see it, we grow trees, trees become boards, boards become houses, boards become thousands of different timber products. But for the Forest Service and the BLM, trees become something nice to look at for people. Now, we're about to cross into the twilight zone. This is where me, very pro-timber industry, are going to agree with the extreme environmentalist. If the fire was naturally caused, I don't think we should be replanting. I think it depends. I think it. De- I think it's a very case-by-case scenario. I think. I think if a land was like kind of untouched, it's like let's say Yellowstone Park for some just, just random example. Yellowstone Park. Just caught on fire from a lightning strike, whatever, burned about a huge section of it. If we're trying, so I want to count for all the variables here. So say we're trying to keep the wolf species up or the deer species up, or we're trying to make sure invasive species don't take that land, or we're trying to make sure a native plant there thrives. Yes. I think with those variables in place, the answer is yes. If I don't, if I think it's like just natural land where no one's logging, no one's, it's not private, no one's living there, then I say no. I don't say, I say don't replant there. Let, let nature over time replant there, if that makes sense. But if like your park right down the road from you lights on fire, I say replant it. If it's your land, I say you can do what you want with it. If it's federal land and it's not like a national park, it's just federal land owned. That's where it gets kind of grayish for me. And again, I think that's just a case by case scenario. I'm not quite sure. No, those are valid points for sure. And this, I'm going to bring you around to kind of where I'm coming from. It costs money to replant, like a lot of money. Well, at least the way we do it in private industry. You can do it for cheaper if you work for, well, if you do aerial seeding with a helicopter, you can replant pretty easily, pretty quickly. But you don't plant, you plant at a very tight spacing. 
which we know a bunch of trees close to each other is not good. Now, I think if if the public says we want to replant after a fire, that's fine. But I don't think that money should come out of taxpayer dollars. I think that money should come out of cutting timber in other areas to offset the cost of replanting after wildfire. Now you got two things going on. You have replanting, turning that area back into timber faster, and reduction of fuel is in another area. It's kind of a win-win. I think it's important for wilderness areas to remain free of invasive species. Like Mike said, it costs a lot of money to treat those areas for invasive species. And that money can come out of cutting timber in other areas, like I mentioned previously. All these things cost a lot of money. Now, here's my thinking and the environmentalist thinking. Fires are natural. It is natural that humans don't go and plant. Now, in Oregon, after a fire, a lot of times the state will replant trees or ferns and other understory to kind of come back in. I think we need to let those fires just seed in naturally. But I also think beginning of the season, when you don't have a lot of fires and you have a lot of resources, if you have a fire that's just being slow, you can it can back to a road, burn out a whole area. Instead of putting it out, why don't you just let it back to as far as it's going to go? If it's trapped for you know 30 acres, it's got roads all around it, let it burn everything out. It's a it's essentially becoming a controlled burn that nature set. So I think there's a lot of different things we can do after a fire. But I think it's important that we don't replant after every fire. Kind of Like Mike mentioned, that everything's different. Each ecosystem is different. There are ecosystems that a lot of times these trees, they don't come in until way later in that area's life after a fire. When we plant them right away, we're advancing secession which is the secession is the term used to describe how nature recolonizes a land after disturbance. We're advancing it by, say, maybe three to seven years. It's a rough number off the top of my head, but I think it's pretty accurate. Those first three years, what if you have an endangered species that needs that secessionary species that come in right after a fire to survive? You're skipping it because you want to see green trees and that's all you want to see. For whatever reason, humans have equated green trees with a healthy forest. And a healthy forest is so much more than the trees. And I'm a forester. I grow trees for a living. My wedding ring has wood in it. I love wood, but that's not the only quality of a healthy ecosystem. So lots of points. One, you like wood. Ha ha ha. I want to go back to, I like the idea of control burn. If it's going, let nature do its control burn. I completely agree with that. I think if it's a safe because I, I completely agree that nature should let do burns, but I also find a compromise of so don't destroy people's livelihoods, don't don't destroy people's cities and towns, houses, and don't make sure at all costs we prevent we prevent the loss of human life. But in a different scenario, say it was closed off on the road, but we're trying to protect an invasive species. Maybe replant those species to help prevent that invasive species to help pre- prevent that species going extinct, I would be okay with that. I might mix my words up there with invasive species and species endangered, but if it, let me rephrase that of saying, if we could replant to help save an endangered species, I think we should do it. If it doesn't really affect on a long-term scale, like nature long-term scale, just let it be and let nature naturally fill it back in or not fill it back in kind of let mother nature decide what she wants to do but again if it's your land like private land i think you should do what you want to be able to do as long as it's a safe and safe scenario 
if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Like one thing Mike pointed out, yeah, if we were losing endangered habitat for whatever reason, we should be able to replant. And I propose we take that money from what timber cut in other areas see i want to elaborate a little bit before you get too far with that with the money thing i think i think the money should come from both taxes and the lumber because i don't think by themselves so i think the money from the timber and taxes should go into a category of fire not not just aftercare of a fire but like the prevention the fighting of wildfire the helping of people uh, with their homes and uh, the loss of personal items and lives and especially the, f- the lives of any people, who, men or women, who lose their lives fighting the fire. I think it should come from both timber and should come from both taxes. I think there's a good compromise there. Now, I don't know the ratio. That's for people way smarter than me. But I, could, I would like to see multiple forms of income coming into pool for that specific topic of just wildfire in general, both before, during, and after. And I think having multiple sources of income is important for something that is it's an expensive project to undertake, which is very disheartening for a lot of people because it's a generational project and it's a very expensive project sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there no you're good um i think the point i was trying to bring out is that the uncut timber fuel as uh, we call it sitting on federal grounds is probably worth in the trillions of dollars and it would provide enough income to pay for suppression prevention and relocation reimbursement after wildfire for other people if we started cutting it. Now, I say that if we used industry standards, there's a lot, it costs a lot more to harvest on federal ground due to regulation. And that's something that definitely should be looked into because a lot of regulations put in place for good reasons, but the way it was put into place maybe isn't the best. But we could use that money, much like the state of Idaho, which uses their money to provide not only for schools, but also for fire prevention. Now, when fires get really out of hand, where does that money come out of? The taxpayers and the schools. Now, I'd rather see it come out of the taxpayers. I I personally don't want to see it come out of the schools, but that's kind of the way everything's set up. And in Oregon, it's the same way. We really stopped cutting state forests, and so they're trying to sell it, which isn't going very well. Really long story. So instead, they're pay- the taxpayers have to pay more, and the schools are getting less. We can make a lot of money. Like I don't think people understand truly how much money our federal wood stockpile is worth. We could pay for all of this if we just started cutting our wood. I agree and disagree at the same time. I definitely believe it's a resource, but I, from our history of humanity and our history in the United States, I am always cautious when we start mining or gathering a resource. We have a tendency to abuse it. So I would like to proceed, but I'd like to proceed cautiously, if that makes sense. Maybe that's maybe where the mixture of income for said projects come in instead of just solely timber of having checks and balances for that because i i i am always cautious with human greed because we we have a tendency to be gluttonous with our resources and i uh i would be very devastated if it turns into like the lorax situation where there are like no more trees left and it might seem unfathomable but weirder things in history have happened and i the only thing that has no bounds in 
the entire world is humanity's stupidity. So I, I, I want to proceed with caution if we go that route. All right, so here's how it's done. First off, I want to point out The Lorax is a book about not cutting down trees written on forest products. I'm not saying it's hypocritical, but yeah, it's actually pretty hypocritical. Now, don't get me wrong, it provides a ton of important lessons. Now, we're about to get into how to manage a forest, Mike. Welcome to my backyard. Oh, God, we need to do a space one fast. I got to get back to space. (laughs) So, we have a certain percentage of land. We keep that... A certain percentage that you can cut and a certain percentage that's growing. Now, at the end of the day, whatever company I work for, we are a company. We want to make money. We want, But at the end of the day, we're all foresters. Or the people who manage the ground are foresters. All of us hunt, fish, recreate on company grounds. We love being outside. That's why we became foresters. None of us are going to do anything to severely harm the ground and i think more of us most of us know more about the ground than your average citizen in the perfect world there would be no better job than being a forester for the government not only do you get to manage for timber production but you get to manage for wildlife you get to manage for water health you get to manage for recreation every day could be different you could be helping every single person every living thing on your forest what do foresters who work in federal government do in my opinion paperwork after that well more paperwork and then after that they manage on a per tree level the largest landowner in the united states is managing on a per tree level where the smaller landowners are managing on a stand level it really doesn't make any sense how they do their job i can guarantee you 99.9 percent of foresters are not going to do anything to to destroy the environment at the end of the day and we say it all the time we are the real environmentalist now so getting back to the question of how do you keep most of that land in different stages? Now there's ways to do it. Now I think the best part would be the way to get it done politically, old growth. What do people love? Old growth. What do people understand about old growth? Not a lot other than that it's old. People think old growth ranges from, and I should you not, 42 to 500 years old. Now Characteristically, old growth is defined as any area of trees having three or more age classes, predominantly a larger overstory, a midstory, and an understory. And if I see another article saying 42-year-old old growth, I will punch you until you understand the word old. 42 is not old in tree years. I'm not going to name names, but Washington State University. Anyway, so you keep, say, fur habitat purposes, recreation purposes, we're gonna keep 10% of that land old growth and that's all it's ever gonna be. Your other 90% of land for forest service, for national parks, we don't touch it, for wilderness areas, we don't touch it. And that's the way Teddy Roosevelt intended it and that's the way we're gonna keep it because he was the best president ever. Your other 90%, that is your production. Those are the trees you keep in a constant rotation. Based on science, your rotation depends, say you're in the Oregon coast range, your rotation is every, will go long-term, longer term than private industry. Say every 50 years, that stand of timber is harvested, turned from trees, into boards at the mill. So you just figure out how many acres you have, you divide that by how many years you want to harvest it, and then you figure out how many year how many acres you can harvest per year to keep a constant rotation of fifty, which is more than which is past the mature age, so you have options of where to go. And that way you always have some in production, you always have some mature trees. And that's kind of how the very very bone dirt, very simplified version of how you always keep trees in production. Okay. You 
I got some point. I have some points. Okay. If we open up this trillion dollar industry, as you so say, it would open the floodgates to a lot that would attract other people who would not follow those policies. Let's be like right now, there are still people who do illegal timber, like just people cutting down a few trees to sell the timber here and there. Just that happens. When you throw more money into the mix, it's a higher risk of com- uh, corruption. And it's finding, I'm not saying like bravo to everyone who's currently doing it and doing it right. It is, that's hard work, honest work. And it's when doing it right makes a huge impact on the environment. But when you open up these floodgates, I'm worried that some people will not come through and be more devastating. That's why he, I want to proceed with caution with this because we might have the system doesn't mean we will do the system. Like we all know everyone should exercise and eat healthy, but yet in America there's an obesity uh pandemic. It it just just because you know doesn't mean it'll get done. It's so I that's my main takeaway from that, I guess. But I I agree with you completely on we know how to on a tree by tree basis to take what we need and not take anything more. But I'm not saying that humanity will do that. That's a fair point, for sure. What I'd say for for right now, our our timber industry, for the most part, it's a family-owned business, which means that when a family member decides to over-harvest, they're only screwing their own family, at least where we're at. Now, there's larger corporations. Start with the W. You know who they are if you know the industry. That's different. But for the most part, timber industry is not a giant industry in the way you think it is it's relatively small now granted mike that's a good point that i really didn't think of in the future of expanding it you bring in more room for you know more people who may be more interested in the monetary outcome than the the i don't know balance of everything the, yeah that and just the knowing you're managing the land for a good cause for sure so that, that's an important point to bring up definitely i i really hadn't considered that i just know from everyone that i've worked with that how the land is managed is definitely their number one concern past money and whatnot i mean we there, we have a saying in the industry it's you take care of the ground the ground takes care of you because at the end of the day you over harvest you cause excessive compaction you burn your ground too hot it doesn't produce trees. Well, what happens? You don't have trees. You don't have money. You don't get paid. You don't have a job. You've, I mean, if you don't have a job, no one's going to hire you because you're the one who fucked up that ground. It's a pretty small industry when it really comes down to it. Yeah, and I am not disputing that you or any people out there are not doing an amazing job and doing the best of the cam. I would, I would easily wager it's 98% of all the people they are doing are doing it and doing it right. But as you increase the size, I don't think that ratio of caring and doing diligent work will match that. And the reason why I think that is because I think of how marijuana is becoming legal in this country, CBD oil, hemp, like people cut corners when they're trying to make a product because like a lot of people make fakes a lot of people try to make like a gucci bag that's not really gucci just to pawn off so it worries me that people might cut down an entire forest for a quick buck and not think generationally and i think i mean it's a whole wormhole a whole can of worms of thinking maybe we only allow people who have past certifications make it hard for people to own land to do timber laws and make sure you have to have a degree to do it or some ridiculous things. I'm not saying I agree with those. I'm just saying maybe have a lot more, as bad as I, I don't want to say it, more red tape 
in case if we do scale it. I'm not saying currently, I think how we now we currently doing it, I think we need less red tape. But if we were to scale it to start really, really getting a lot of money from this land, I think it needs to be looked at a precaution because there are so many morons in this world and those morons will ruin it for the rest of us. And I just want to make sure they don't truly ruin it for everyone yeah that's definitely a fair point now though like i understand what you're you're saying more regulation for more people definitely makes sense i do want to say that the problem with that this is it's kind of a difficult answer because the people we're talking about scaling up production are all federal government workers so they're already under it really depends the area, sometimes less, sometimes more regulations. However, when you scale up like that in the government, you're going to see it's going to take a long time. Like there are environmental impact surveys. If we want to trail a hand line for a prescribed burn on them, it's going to take about nine months to get back. So I think you're already really overregulated by just the environmental procedures they already have. All you're really doing is giving them the red, the green light to say, go and harvest. They're already pretty overregulated in my opinion. So what you're really doing is you're giving them a direction. Right now their direction is don't do a lot, stay under the radar. Don't call attention to yourself. You're just changing that directive to, hey, take care of your forest. So the government's going to have a lot more regulations in the private industry than private landowners especially. And the only thing that, in, in my opinion, from working in the private industry, in the forest products industry, is that more regulation, you're putting more power in the hands of bigger corporations, bigger companies than you are little guys. At the end of the day, I work for a big company for the area. Nationally, we're a small fish, but we can sur- we're big enough to survive most of these regulations. It's the landowners who own 30, 40 acres. They're the ones who end up taking the brunt of these regulations. They're the ones who can't manage their ground as well because it costs so much. It's complicated. They don't know what to do. It, it is really complicated. It takes a while to learn, and it's my job. You brought up a point I want to touch on. I think if the federal government was to allow more timber harvesting, I think they wouldn't do it themselves. I think they would contract it out. And that makes me nervous because I think they would contract to either whoever lobbied them for the politics or whoever has the best deal for them. Like we'll give you, we'll give you 40 cents on the dollar of every dollar we make, like something or like people like they'll bid for that contract job because i can see that happening i can see the federal government going all right we're just going to take a step back it's our land but we don't want to do the work to pay other people we'll we'll have someone come in to do the work and we'll get part of that profit but they do the work and they get some of the profit i can see that more realistically happening and then with contract work it makes me nervous especially when it's like the lower the lowest bidder kind of thing so I, I just wanted to point that out before you continue what you, uh, your conversation, Nick. Yeah, so that's a good point. Um, for those of you who don't know, the timber industry is predominantly contract work. A inventory and a map of the land we put up, and there's a couple different ways people will bid on how much is there. They'll take it as is, pay a certain amount, and then anything they take off of it is theirs, or they'll take a percentage, or they'll 
do it hourly, which is pretty uncommon. But for the most part, it's it's contract work. And it usually goes to the lowest bidder because that's how you make the most profit. In that contract are certain specifications. And what Mike's probably getting at is that the contract administrator, the forester for the government, doesn't ensure that those contract re- requirements are met. These contract requirements include putting in culverts for appropriate drainage, um, where you're, uh, shoot, where... Because with those contracts, I know they don't even sometimes build buildings correctly. And those will house people and have people in them. So it makes me nervous to think that if they're cutting corners on making buildings where people will live, what will they do in the middle of the woods with for, with trees and lumber? So I think what we're getting into is that the government is inept and we're both going to agree on this. So we'll go back to that topic we talked about where a massive land trade. Like we talked about checkerboards is um, what if we just took a bunch of land, private industry traded a bunch of their land to the federal government and federal government traded a bunch of their land to private industry. You solve a lot of problems. One, the federal government has a lot of biologists, a lot of people who want to create wildlife habitat. The problem is there's not a lot of wildlife habitat you can create in just dense stands of timber. When you do that land trade, you're inheriting a bunch of land at all or a bunch of forests at all different ages from zero to harvest to old growth. There's thousands of different treatments you could do to create habitat. You could cut down every other tree. You're increasing your grassland. You could plant a second cadre of trees. So you're having a multi multi-age stand. There's so many different things from a forestry perspective. It would be the dream of those biologists and forest managers. What you're also doing is you're taking all the federal ground and putting it in one block, which means all those gates that private industry has come off. Private industry puts up gates because people dump a lot of trash on our ground. People steal a lot of our trees. People go in our forest on fire season and light fires, do a bunch of stupid stuff. We put up gates to prevent that. We don't want to keep people out. There's nothing as a forester i enjoy more than people enjoying our forest however people were given something that they just couldn't handle and it became more cost effective to keep them out than let them in and at the end of the day we are a company we want to make money we care for the ground just as much as you and that's why we lock those people out of it when people start when people stop disrespecting our ground and stop disrespecting their own ground that's when they'll be let back in but until we see that we're not going to open those gates but if all of that was a giant block of public land, you'd be free to do whatever you want. It is your ground. Public land is our ground. And it's important that we be able to access it. Do I like the fact that a bunch of public land is locked up behind our gates? No. But if that was my house and there's public land behind it, would I let you walk through my front door and go out my back door to get to it? No. And I think it's unrealistic that we expect other people to allow us to do that to get to our own ground. I think this is a pretty sensible solution for the world we live in. Once we have these these areas of private and public, then we can really focus on those areas in between. Like I mentioned, 90% of wildfires start on federal grounds, and that's because they have so much fuel built up from their lack of harvesting timber. Because that timber that's overstocked, maybe the beetles don't get it, maybe they don't outcompete each other. Well, they do outcompete each other, but those trees that don't die from the competition or trees that do die from the competition, they eventually fall over on the ground and they become fuels. That area is such 
is so much more fire prone than other areas. That's why it's such a hazard and that's why 90% of these wildfires start on federal ground. If we were able to separate it, put it all in one place, we could have aggressive fuel breaks on every side of that. So it doesn't matter how hot it got in there. If we really managed it, you bet federal or private industry would make sure that there was nothing to burn in between their ground and the feds. And I think that that is one of the most aggressive and effective ways to stop wildland fire. But it has a lot of moving parts. A lot of people would have to agree. And I don't think it'll ever get done. What do you think, Mike? I agree with most aspects of that. I never want to say never because I I am, unfortunately, false hope is better than no hope. But I do, I really think people want to work. I really think people want to take care of their stuff. And I think a lot of people want to take pride in what they do and i think the more option you give that to people the more it gets done and i think that stems from something small such as cooking to something tranquil something as peaceful as maintaining land i i i from in the house to at work and to on your property i think having pride in something will get it done and get it done correctly and i think it's the same with forestry i think having that separation of the federal and private land and having it less checkerboard out having the individual having more control of having it done correctly and yeah i i i completely agree with you if someone is messing up my like my land or setting fires i'm gonna course kick them out if you can't play nice you can't play at all I mean, it's simple childhood rules. The like the the rules we learn as kids: it, treat other ones how you want to be treated, and like it's just simple childhood stuff like that. And when you disrespect land and nature, of course we're we're not going to want you on there because we everyone. I can speak for me and Nick. Nick more than I. We love nature. Nick is a tree fucker. Sorry, hugger. I get those confused with you, Nick. It's they're they're so interchangeable those words all the time. But I think, I really think if we give the people the option and let them decide as a private individual with government help that the government does their own thing, private people do their own thing, but we come to a compromise and work together, I think that's the best solution. Kind of went all over the board there, but uh, yeah. No, you're good. Uh, At the end of the day, I think no matter what solution we take getting people educated on wildfire what causes it where it came from why it's an issue is going to be the most important problem i mean the most important part to tackle because we laid out a lot of solutions we laid out a lot of problems and those are just the ones we found those are the ones i know about working in the industry maybe it takes an outside eye to find a great solution but until people realize this problem until people start protecting their homes which is an even bigger problem i I don't see any of this changing i mean my dream is that we have a changing of federal and private lands put federal lands in one spot to make it so that no matter what policy they put in place it really doesn't affect us i personally would like to see federal lands in the middle of nowhere private lands around towns because those lands are going to be a lot more fire resistant now me personally for working and make my life easier if federal lands were around towns and private lands were in the middle of nowhere because people really don't like what 
forestry does like in general they don't like cutting with trees and all that stuff so it would make my life easier if i never had to talk to another neighbor but at the end of the day it would make those towns safer which is part of the most frustrating part of my job is that everything we do not only do we make a profit and we make money and that's how companies work and that's how forestry stays in business but we are making those people safer and getting crucified for it at the same time that's that's gotta be so frustrating but I, I think you hit the nail on the head with, it starts with education. Just lack of knowledge is not an excuse. We have such powerful tools at our fingertips. And just a simple Google or down the rabbit hole of knowledge, you could come up with so many solutions and, and, and be better for it. And I may not know what the future may hold, but I can hope. And I can see people coming together for compromises and implementing multiple solutions. I mean, this is, Nick said again, a very complicated topic with lots of moving parts. It's it's complicated for an organization to do, let alone individuals to do. So hopefully we can come together and hopefully we can come up with solutions. And I, again, I want to thank all the men and women who work very, very hard and put their life on the line fighting these fires and helping prevent these fires from happening and the people who do do the aftercare and help bring nature back to a point where it should be if the situation calls for it. Yeah, so I want to give a, we're going to give a shout out to the wildland firefighters. Um, like we mentioned previously, forestry technicians is their actual job title. Um, they get really undertaken care of by the government, much like trees, but um, they do really good work. They're really... You know, they're, they're the backbone of all this firefighting. We have the fancy planes, helicopters, all this, but it is the men and the women who, who do all that work. Um, if, if you, you know, right now everyone's given to charity to help the victims of wildland fire and people are displacing their homes. But, you know, if you feel like you want to give something, I, I highly recommend the Wildland Firefighter Foundation because they help the actual firefighters. And those guys are putting their lives on the line. You know, it's, it's a dangerous job. And they do it, and it's getting more dangerous every single year. Firefighter deaths have been steadily increasing since the uh, the 80s. You know, those firefighters who, who died in the past, who basically were the ones who gave us all the safety and the knowledge that we have now, all of our stuff came from them. And firefighting increases, our knowledge of how to do it increases, but at the same time, due to fuel loading, it's becoming more and more dangerous every year. The federal government doesn't really do their best to take care of these guys, so the Wildland Firefighter Foundation kind of picks up that slack. So that's that's a charity I'd recommend. You know, do your own research if you want to donate to some people. Every single fire that's going on right now is going to have its own local charity, so if you can just search it, find it, you can probably donate there. This is just kind of a broad one. I'd like to give it to those guys who are definitely not taken care of by the feds. An inch is an inch. Every little bit matters. And Nick, I I think we we covered quite a broad spectrum of the wildfire scenarios. And uh, I want to thank, I wonder if there's anything else you want to say? No, uh, I just want to close though. If you do live out in the wilderness, please make sure your house is safe and do it as soon as you can. Like don't wait until the last minute to do it like a lot of people do because the more work you put in now, 
the more likely a firefighter is going to be able to say, oh, yeah, we can save that house. If you wait to the last minute to do it and your neighbor's house is completely free of fuel, they're not going to save your house first, bud. Sorry. That's just the way it is. And again, from both me and Nick, our hearts are in prayers are out to the men and women fighting the fires and putting on their lives on the line. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram and Backyard Philosophy Podcast on Facebook.